Film Geeks' Halloween Special. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Film Geezers Halloween Special. I know it's been a while since we've uh, done a podcast. Um, things get in the way, life gets in the way of things, so... But we're back now. (laughs) So we thought, since our first podcast bout was going to be on Halloween, that we'd do a horror special, which is, um, I think it's one of our favourite genres. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know it's definitely your favourite genre. It's perfect because it's Halloween today, isn't it? (laughs) And um, in preparation for for this, I actually watched... um, you're a big fan of Halloween, yeah. the film. Um, so I watched Halloween one to five, which was the only ones I could find on Netflix. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, Halloween is obviously a classic. It's mm. it's um, uh, it's a pivotal film in in the the genre because um, it inspired a lot of. Um, well, this thing is a double edged sword because yeah. it's it's great. Cause it's a brilliant film. It inspired loads of things, but in inspiring things, it inspired a load of shit as well. So yeah. I was kind of like, with any with anything like a big movie like that, there's always going to be yeah some not so good films, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, two was okay. I, I quite you, you said in retrospect you thought two wasn't really well, I th- I great. Think two, it doesn't. It's hard. Is two's a bit like um, it's unfortunate because where it takes directly after, it's one of those rare sequels where it literally picks up where the ending left off like minutes after we're talking about yeah. we we see Dr. Loomis go out the house outside the house and he sees Michael's gone from him shooting him obviously in, in the ending of Halloween 1 and where I always watch these back to back because you can it's like one long movie isn't it but where it's where you can watch it back to back you can easily see how good the original is and it doesn't quite live up to that so it's no. not a bad movie at no. all but I I have a few gripes I must admit with it. I, um, it's just unfortunate where it, it yeah, it, it tries to continue that story but not yeah. as good. And then you had Halloween three, which was Season yeah. of the Witch, which was a completely different story. I got rid of the Michael Myers. Well that's what um and because you said it was gonna be like an anthology series, so each episode was gonna have a different Yeah, there theme. was. Um after Halloween one, Deborah Hill took the mask home, she put it underneath her bed. Uh, and in her mind, they were gonna, never going to use the mask again because they were going to do an anthology series, a bit like how uh, American Horror Story is now, where they do different series about different things. But obviously, loads of people wanted Halloween, so uh, they want Michael Myers, sorry, and, and so John Carpenter. He was drunk and he wrote a script <clears> for <throat> Halloween Two, and then they were like, "Yeah, we're done finally with Halloween after Halloween Two. We're done with Michael Myers." So they yeah, they tried something different, and people didn't like it because it's not the. Yeah. Best movie. Is well, it? I've got to say, as a standalone movie, anyway, even if it wasn't part of the supposedly part of the Halloween series, it wasn't a great film. No, the story was a bit weird. Um, and then Halloween four and five. I like Halloween four. Yeah, it's, but it's just like it's the how, same film. How many times can you do the same thing over and over and still make it interesting? This thing, I think they had to. They had to. Um, Mustafa Akkad, he finally got the rights to the film and he was like, we're going to bring Michael Myers back and he had to, yeah. I think he kind of had to uh, 
keep it almost nearly this, obviously it's nowhere nearly as like, as well executed as the original but they had to keep it like maybe the sim like it's like a similar movie because obviously it'll get returning fans back yeah. and maybe new fans but then Halloween 5 is one of the worst movies ever made yeah. so it well the introduction of his niece uh, and the fact they have some kind of spiritual connection um, and she attempts to murder her mother and everything. Mm. It's kind of, I don't know, I just... Well, it's, I think it seems so far removed from the, the simplistic original. Yeah. It's like, how do you get, how the hell do you get to this point? But, um, and obviously I couldn't, I couldn't watch Halloween 6 because I couldn't find it anywhere to well, watch. Good luck. Um, it's not, there's like 20 different releases yeah. of it. So good luck trying to find um, good, good <laughs> like that, an actual good release um, of it. H2O I saw at the cinema, I think. Yeah. Um, and that's the last... Well, I did see the... I did actually watch... I mean, a while ago, I tried to watch the Rob Zombie version. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And I did see the new Halloween... Not the Halloween Kills, but the one... Yeah. I saw that last in cinema. Which was okay, but it's, it's back to the sort of similar formula, yeah. really. So that's what I've kind of been watching. Well, I... I very rarely watch Halloween anymore, because I really... I. I've watched them a million times, I understand it, but I haven't really been watching horror movies. I mean, I watched The Invisible Man the other day, yeah. uh, and I actually really surprisingly enjoyed that. And I'm mm. really surprised. It actually, it makes you feel, it's like a very unsettling movie where, mm. I don't know why, but it's just seeing a disembodied voice talking about world domination is really, really like unsettling, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's actually one of the films that I'm going to cover. Mm. Um, Later on, so no spoilers. But yeah, I've been watching. I've been watching other things as yeah. well. I've been watching um, Crimson Tide. Yeah, that's a brilliant. Yeah. That's a brilliant movie. Is there anything other other than horror you've been watching or recently? Um, I watched Con Air again because yeah, uh, I had it on TV for for ages mm. for about eight months, I think. And it's it's you know it is what it is. It's it's two hours of kind of complete, um, just release isn't it really <laughs> just you know you sit back you watch it you have, well, I think you can you describe it it's a Nick Cage film so yeah, there you go yeah um, Tony Scott as well isn't it did you say no it's not it's, um, I don't know who did Conan uh, was it Michael Michael, Michael no no he was uh, I can't forget I forget now yeah Tony Scott did Crimson Tide so yeah <clears throat> after a lot of that but yeah um, and I re-watched uh, Frankenstein yeah and Creature from the Black Lagoon out of today's podcast, just because I've not watched them for ages, mm. so yeah, yeah, I've watched I've watched all the classic horror movies. Yeah. I think you have to, really. yeah, yeah, because we've always said that. Well, when I don't know if you got this in the end, but in in film, I always see there's the premiere sort of genres, or like the, the they, these genres make up the backbone of film. So you got like action, comedy maybe thriller, drama, and then horror. They're like yeah. the four main genres. And yeah, horror, like you said before, horror is definitely one of our favourite yeah. genres of, of film. Okay, cool. Should we get on with the rest of the podcast? Yeah, let's, let's right, get into let's it. Yeah. So, like I say, this is about horror, but we kind of have to define what is a horror because there's some films that, that, that are defined as horror films that we don't think mm. really are. So this is kind of a... Um, a dictionary definition a horror is one that seeks to elicit fear or disgust in its audience for entertainment purposes 
Horror films additionally aim to evoke views, nightmares, revulsions and terror of the unknown or the macabre. Horror may also overlap with the fantasy, supernatural fiction and thriller genres. The first time in the industry that the word horror was used to describe the genre was in the 1930s, which is surprising. Yeah, much later than I was Yeah, before. previously it was really just romance melodrama with a dark element. So, you know, films, I mean, you, we talked about this the other day, I mean, Psycho is considered this by some to be yeah. a horror film. And, and I mean, there's a couple of my films on there, because this thing, horror is very easily, can very easily overlap other genres, like you said, but there's a couple on here that aren't just horror, they're, they're horror something else, but they're still horror, mm-hmm. whereas like Psycho... Yeah, I don't know why. It's just not a hot to me. Well, to it's, a, it's just not a horror movie. It's a psychological it's a, thriller. It's a thriller. Think, yeah, with, same I mean, with Science of the Lambs. Yeah, it's a psychological I mean, thriller. There's horror elements in it, but on, only with the shower scene, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just just something yeah. about it. It's just not a horror movie to <clears> me. And then I saw like, there's some people talk about Jurassic Park being a horror movie, like horror movie. Yeah. It's like get off it, you know. Jaws. I mean, they they do like. With like Jaws and Jurassic Park, it's horrifying to see like a Tyrannosaurus Rex and a and a great white yeah. kill people. I mean, could, you could consider it maybe loosely as a monster film. Yeah, monster or, film. Yeah, yeah, or maybe, is but it monster horror film. Yeah, it's not horror. They're not horror movies, are they? <laughs> no, no. They're action thrillers, yeah. really, aren't they? So, well, I tell you, did you, do you remember the first horror film you ever watched? Uh. Well, this thing that I remember the first real like eighteen I watched was Predator, and some yeah. people consider that horror. I don't really consider it horror, but the first all-out horror movie, it would have been one of the Universal classics, I think, because yeah. you had it on a box set. It must have been yeah. Frankenstein or something. Yeah. So I've, I have quite vivid memories of me being four years old mm. and watching King Kong for the first time. What the thirties one? Yeah, and mm. absolutely scaring the shit out of me. <laughs> Be, you know, proper, proper behind the sofa. Really? Yeah, and then you have nightmares about big ass monkeys coming <laughs> and kidnapping you. Well, yeah, and then like, um, <clears throat> like when you got a bit older, your, your mum and dad used to let you stay up on a weekend. Yeah, and I remember what seeing, um, like a lot of the classic monster movies. Mm. That's why all my films are pre nineteen sixty. Yeah, because that is kind of the era which. I enjoy the most, I think. And this is the thing with horror. Um, it's had its highlights, but it's also had its down. Yeah. Horror was very was the biggest genre, like during the 30s, and yeah. its golden age, didn't it? And then it kind of had a renaissance, like um, in the 80s, didn't it? You know, with all well, you that. Had sort of in the 30s, the universal horror. Yeah, the classic monsters. Yeah. And then what happened is, in the 50s, TV came along. So a lot yeah. of these films were re-shown on television, which kind of reignited an interest in it. And that's Makes sense, you, yeah. And that's when you got the Hammer sort yeah. of horror films. And then they really went out of fashion probably in the early 70s. And it wasn't really, yeah, it was an unfashionable genre till maybe the late 70s. Yeah. With with sort of Halloween and that kind of film. Because I mean, you resurrected it. You look at the 80s and, and yeah. there's so many horror movies. Most of the movies that came out had horror aspects in them yeah. in the 80s, you know. Uh but then once again, it kind of it kind of died out, didn't it? Yeah. Maybe to the halfway through the nineties, yeah. and then it, actually, right now the twenty tens, <clears throat> obviously moving into the twenty twenties, have been another almost almost was nice one. So a lot of movies are horror movies nowadays, yeah. aren't they? So it's good to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to start my yep, first film good. today. Is going to be the original Dracula, the 1931. Just a little bit of background. Um, Carl Lemley. 
uh, had started Universal Pictures in 1912. Their two biggest hits were the silent films Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1923 and Phantom of the Opera in 1925, both starring Lon Chaney, and they were a huge success. So they thought that that would be a way to go, is maybe make more yeah. films in the horror genre. In 1928, uh, Lemley Sr. made his son Carl Jr. head of Universal Pictures as a 21st birthday present, which was nice. <laughs> <laughs> what did you get when you were 21? Not a film studio. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was Lemley Jr. who oversaw the modernisation of the studio, including the transition from silent films to sound. But perhaps his greatest legacy was the creation of a niche for the studio, a series of horror films extended into the 1950s, affectionately called Universal Horror. And all this started with Dracula. Now, Dracula had been filmed without permission as Nosferatu in 1922 by the German expressionist filmmaker F.W. Murnau, Bram Stoker's widow sued for plagiarism and copyright infringement and won, essentially ordering that all prints of Nosferatu be destroyed. But some uh, obviously uh, survived. Survived, yeah. And now I think that's, I think Nosferatu is actually open, um, is is outside copyright now, I believe, because of of its Mm. age. Yeah, yeah. So plot of Dracula we probably all know. Uh, Renfield, played by Dwight Fry, he was a Universal contract player. He actually appeared in other films that I'm going to talk about. He uh, is a solicitor travelling to Count Dracula's castle in Transylvania on a business matter. The local village people warn him not to go there. He's driven to the castle by Dracula's coach with Dracula disguised as the driver. Um, Renfield enters the castle, welcomed by the charming but eccentric Count, who unbeknownst to Renfield is a vampire. And they discuss Dracula's intention to leave Carfax Abbey in England, where he intends to travel the next day. Dracula hypnotises and attacks Renfield. Um, aboard the schooner Vesta, Renfield is a raving lunatic slave to Dracula who hides in a coffin and feeds on the ship's crew. When the ship reaches England, Renfield is discovered to be the only living person who is sent to Dr Seward's sanatorium adjoining Carfax Abbey. At a London theatre, Dracula meets Seward, Seward introduces daughter Mina, her fiancé John Harker and her family friend Lucy Weston. That night, Dracula enters Lucy's room and feasts on her blood while she sleeps. Lucy dies the next day after a string of blood transfusions. Dracula visits Mina asleep in her bedroom and bites her. Dr Seward then calls in a specialist, Professor Van Helsing, played by an actor called Edward Van Sloan, and he he was a universal regular as well, Mm. to diagnose the sudden deterioration of Mina's health. After meeting Dracula and seeing he has no reflection in the mirror, Van Helsing deduces that Dracula is a vampire and is behind the recent attacks. At Carfax Abbey, Van Helsing and Harker find Dracula asleep in his coffin. Van Helsing prepares a wooden stake while Harker searches for Mina. Van Helsing impels Dracula through the heart, killing him, and Mina returns to normal. So that's kind of the familiar Dracula story that's yeah, like been you, you repeated. Say, like you yeah. say, a lot of people do know these, but... Um, they might not know the the major details of the yeah. film, you know. Um, it was it was initially meant to be a lavish production on the scale of Phantom of the Opera, closely following Stoker's novel. I mean, Phantom of the Opera, they actually built a replica of, of the interior of the uh, Paris Opera House at Universal. Mm. I mean, that's how, how much they went into it. Yeah. Um, and it's I think it's still there. <laughs> you could, I think Probably they, can tour it, can't you? Um, I'm not sure if it's open for tour, but I think they, they have, like, corporate events and stuff there. Mm. But I remember seeing on the programme that they still they still have it there. Um, 
but in 1930 Universal had made losses of 2.2 million so they had to cut costs that was due to the, like the Great Depression and the, and the stock market crash well yeah um, they secured the rights to the novel on the 1924 stage play by Hamilton Dean and John L. Baldston for $40,000. Um, actually, Bella Lugosi helped in the negotiations with Stokes' widow. don't know how that happened, but <laughs> anyway. Um, Lemley wasn't all interested in Lugosi playing uh, Dracula, although he'd actually been in the stage play that, that was touring um, America. They had planned to actually play the role on Broadway, and he happened to be in Los Angeles with a touring company of the play when the film was being cast. Now, Universal had intended Lon Chaney to be Dracula, but he unfortunately died of um, throat cancer shortly before production. Um, So Lugosi lobbied hard, and he ultimately won won the executives over, and he actually dropped his salary to 500 dollars per week I think it was a seven week shoot where a lot of the a lot of the actors made um, same same in a week as he made in the whole shoot Gee. so Todd Browning who directed it um, he worked a lot with Lon Chaney he was friends with Lon Chaney and Chaney's death hit him hard so there's some rumours that he he basically turned to alcohol and he mm. was drunk throughout most of the production so um, the cinematographer Carl Freund, um took over and and you know did sort of uncredited direction on on the film. Um, <coughs> because of the low budget, the scene of the crew member on the ship struggling in the violent storm, they were actually lifted from a Universal silent film called The Stormbreaker. So they actually there's a, there's a, a there's a part on the ship where Dracula's coming to England and they actually cut that in with a, a previous Universal film. Oh. Um, they actually filmed a Spanish language version of it as well because rather than I don't know whether they just didn't have the technology to be able to dub it I know back in the day where yeah. they actually had to redo the whole film in Spanish yeah they, they filmed it at night <clears throat> yeah. when the other film had, had stopped shooting using a Spanish speaking cast and crew and so that's kind of what they did back then I mean I've seen um, I've seen Lauren and Hardy films where they've actually Reshot it in German, and they're speaking German, but they're obviously learning their lines phonetically. Yeah, but yeah, that's how they oh, did it before because they didn't really have. Yeah, um, and the the legacy of that is that the look of Dracula set by Lugosi has been a blueprint for most films to come. Really, you think of Dracula, you think the cape, even Hammer's. I think yeah, Christopher, Christopher Lee, Lee was his look cape. based on. Um, he said not. He said he, he wanted to get away. Lugosi never actually wore teeth. No. Uh, the, you know, the sort of pointy teeth. Oh, like the fangs yeah, almost, yeah. fangs. So that is a later addition. Yeah. But definitely the, the cape and everything um, was was his. Mm. And when you think of Dracula, you think of that that version of it. Yeah. Um, Coppola remade or, or made a version of it called Bram Stoker's Dracula in the 90s with Gary Oldman. And uh, that was close to the book, but even even after that, um, you had a there was a, I think there was a Dracula in the eighties starring Frank Langella as Dracula and Laurence Olivier as Van Helsing, and that was the same kind of thing. Leslie Nielsen made a film spoof Dracula Dead and Loving It, 
So you know when a f- film's been spoofed, it's got to be, you because know, <laughs> everyone has to have seen the original to get the references, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, and that's all modelled on the on on the, the Ghosts Dracula. Um, Dracula sold 50,000 tickets in its first 48 hours and went on to make $700,000 profit, which convinced Lemley to, to produce more horror films. So without Dracula, we might not have had all the rest of the universal horror mm. films. Um, Lugosi really had a... His, his life really sort of <laughs> took a sad turn, really, because he, he continued doing the films, but he couldn't replicate the success he had with Dracula. It's thought that his thick Hungarian accent limited the parts he was offered and he was not unable to avoid typecasting. And this was frustrating to him as back in his native Hungary he was an accomplished dramatic stage actor and he'd played Shakespeare and other things mm. like that. Um, he found himself relegated to minor parts with Universal trade on his name which still had marquee value. So what they do, they cast him as like supporting cast yeah. but still use his name at the top of the... the poster because his name still had you know you can't understand how big these actors were back then we were talking the other day average cinema attendance in 1930 was 80 million a week and you compare that to 2018 which had a little bit of a resurgence um and that was like four million a week yeah so it was a um obviously there was nothing else there was no tv back then so people went to the cinema that's how you had your entertainment wasn't yeah, it? got your news real yeah generally a double feature or something so these were actually huge huge stars yeah um anyway Lugosi only played Dracula twice once in 31 and then again in the Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein 1948 he had played other vampires but not Dracula now Abbott and Costello they were a comedy duo um they started out on radio went into films and they made a series of um, meet uh, film so I wouldn't sell Meet the Mummy Meet Frankenstein Meet I think it was the killer Boris Karloff and they were in sort of the late 40s towards the end of the Universal uh, Monster mm. and they are considered canon as well because they do feature the original mm. Universal Monsters but obviously it was a, a trying to um, maybe appeal to a newer audience yeah. or to to refresh that kind of um you know the the horror genre by adding a bit of a comedy element to it. Right. So, um, the ghost he had sciatica, which is a back problem, thought to be the result of injuries received during World War One and receiving regular morphine and methadone, which he became dependent on. This was known to producers, and the office started to dry up. And actually, in the mid fifties, he was hospitalised for addiction. He finished his career making appearances in low-budget films directed by Ed Wood who's considered um, by a lot of people possibly the worst director ever. Um, there's a 1994 film directed by Tim Burton starring Johnny Depp as Wood and Martin Lando as Lugosi and he won an Oscar I think for Best Supporting Actor for that. It's worth a watch because it, it is quite <clears throat> sad how his career really after after Dracula really went downhill um, and um, he died in 1956 of a heart attack and he was buried he's actually buried in one one of his Dracula capes not the one he'd won in the 31 film but one of the the later ones that's quite cool isn't it yeah but again it was it was really um, I mean massive movie starring one film and then you you find your career just just take off just goes downhill 
and some of the roles he played were were not great yeah. after that. And you've got the studio still kind of just cashing in on your name as well. Yeah. Um, and you're you're not getting the the accolades <clears throat> you should do. So that's my first pretty iconic film to start film. off. Yeah, start definitely. Uh, I mean, mine, my first film, I think is no. It's not going to come as a shock to anyone. Oh, would this be Halloween? Yeah. Any yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Halloween is a 1978 horror thriller film co-written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill and directed by John Carpenter. It stars Donald Pleasance, Jamie Lee Curtis, Nick Castle and Charles Cyphers. The plot, on Halloween night 1963, in the fictional town of Haddonfield, Illinois, six-year-old Michael Myers inexplicably stabs his teenage sister Judith to death with a kitchen knife. For the next 15 years, he's incarcerated at Smith's Grove Sanitarium. On October 30th, 1978, Michael's psychiatrist, Dr. Sam Loomis, played by Donald Pleasance, and his colleague Marion Chambers, arrive at the sanitarium to escort Michael to court for a hearing. Loomis hopes the outcome of the hearing is that Michael will never be released from Smith's Grove. However, Michael steals their car and escapes, killing a mechanic for his coveralls on the way back to Haddonfield. Upon returning home, Michael steals a white and expressionless mask from a hardware store. Laurie Strode, played by Curtis, drops off a key for her dad, owner of Strode Realty, at the Myers house. Due to this, Michael makes her and her friends his targets. He begins to stalk them during the day, until at night, where he pursues his mission. Meanwhile, Dr Loomis hunts Michael around Haddonfield. And now, like I said, it's not a... It's not a shock that this is on my... On my list, is it? And I, no. I, I always talk about this film, and it's... I, it's on my top 10 I believe and it's always when I talk about film when I think about film this is always a film I, I always think about or, or talk about you know um, and that's just because in my opinion Halloween is a is a masterpiece uh, I'd even go as far to say it's a marvel of filmmaking um, John Carpenter had a budget of just over $300,000 and made essentially one of the greatest films of all time it just is, is it blows my mind uh I mean, the funny thing is, it's probably the most simple film of all time. A crazy man goes around a neighbourhood killing people. It doesn't actually sound so great, does it? Uh, the thing is, John Carpenter gets everything right with what he was trying to go for. This film is the most atmospheric suspense film ever made. And it's this very suspense and atmosphere that Halloween is built on. We get Michael Myers, played by Castle. You know, he's the embodiment of evil, the shape, the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. He's almost more supernatural than human. And it seems while our characters are in the many houses, I cringe every time they go past a piece of furniture or go into a different room, etc. This is because Michael could simply be everywhere and nowhere at the same time. I love the way in which John Carpenter almost makes us wait for Michael to get down to business. He's shown Stork and Laurie throughout the day. You know, we don't know his intentions up to this point. He could just be a random stranger playing a prank due to being Halloween. Or the psycho killer we are later known to show him to be. It's just so effective, because at any point during the day, even the scenes when Laurie is at school, or with her friends, or even hitching a ride in the car. It's just so unsettling to know Michael is somewhere out there watching her, even when we don't necessarily see him. It also adds this sense of, I think, this sense of dread, because we're waiting for Michael to act on his intentions. Laurie Strode is our final girl. She really grows as a character as the film goes on. She goes from a stereotypical nerd who is pissed that she's got a chemistry book, and who's basically scared of everything the film entails, to a strong, competent character who becomes Tommy and Lindsay's protector. Dr. Sam Loomis follows Michael to Haddonfield with the main aim of stopping him. He's charismatic, courageous and hell-bent on doing whatever it takes to bring Michael down. 
Of course, much of the brilliance of Loomis is due to Donald Pleasant's portrayal. I mean, when I think of Loomis, I think of the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes speech. You know, this is one of the best in cinema, I'd say, as in terms of like a monologue for a character, you know. And it sum perfectly sums up the character itself. It's perfectly delivered from a veteran actor and adds even more layers to him and Michael himself. Like I said before, this film doesn't get its scares from cheap jump scares or intense gore. It's all about the atmosphere. Just before I go into the atmosphere, the look of Michael himself, mainly the mask, is the stuff of nightmares. The most iconic mask in the history of horror was almost a lightning in a bottle moment. Tommy Lee Wallace was tasked with producing the mask. He settled, thankfully, with the $2 Captain Kirk mask he found from a charity shop. He ripped off the eyebrows along with the sideburns, tussled out the hair and spray painted it white. That's literally all he did. Uh, and in less than 30 minutes he created a pure and simple evil. Now I can't quite put my finger on why this mask is so scary. Maybe because it's such a blank slate in which you can project whatever the hell you want onto it. Maybe it's the fact that it looks like somewhat human but not human at the same time. I think unnatural is the word I'm looking for. Whether it is, his mask is completely bone chilling. Now back onto the atmosphere. I mean, John Carpenter somehow makes the town feel as claustrophobic as a basement. I really don't know how he does this. It just goes to show how great a director John Carpenter is, and that's why they call him the master horror. This atmosphere and suspense plays right into Michael's hands, and they complement each other perfectly. There's a few things that seem to bother people nowadays. The acting is a bit dated. It's not exactly the film's fault, and some people don't like the fact there was no blood. This film doesn't need blood, and also, that wasn't what John Carpenter was going for. Like I said before, this is one of the greatest films of all time, one of the greatest soundtracks of all time, and it is still the go-to on how to make a great horror thriller movie even today. And that's the reason why it's on my list. That's yeah. my first film. Yeah, I read an article recently about yeah. um, Halloween had been shown to a group of teenagers. Yeah. And they were like, yeah. That was it. It's like, <laughs> it pisses me off so much. But then, when you take it out of context, it's like with the, the sort of classic horror films. Yeah. You know, you've got to understand the um, the sort of tastes at the time and the things at right. the time. Um, you know, horror is one of those genres that's constantly pushing pushing the boundaries, boundaries of what's yeah. acceptable. And so, you know, I think people become desensitised, like with the blood and everything. I mean, that was a conscious decision, wasn't it, not to show blood yeah. in Halloween. Um, and so, yeah, it looks dated. And yeah, I'll, I'll admit it, it looks dated, but like... It isn't great. Because it's 78, you know what I mean? But again, you've got to look at it in the context of, and and also in its legacy as well. Yeah, you know they said, oh, it's it's cliched, but that's the film that created it's a lot of the cliches. The cliches yeah. You know, so it's, it's the kind of, yeah, you, the so you got to look yeah. at it in that in that respect. So yeah, I I, I thoroughly agree. I think yeah, Halloween is a great film. And it, like I said, it started yeah. off that that whole slasher. Craze I mean, the fact that. that it's constantly being rebooted and remade—that's that's always it's testament still relevant to, today as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly, testament to. Um, and it's one of those films that has that kind of—it's um, that trope of being trapped in a right, yeah. in a small space with something, you know, a monster kind of thing. And that speaks, I think, to our prime, prime, primordial yeah, kind yeah. of. It's about. It's. I think it's a lot. It's a. I don't know what the, what the right word would be, but it's almost a phobia for a lot of people. You know, um, being trapped in small spaces with claustrophobia. Yeah. But then, when you've got a killer, or a monster, or that type of, yeah. the antagonist in these type of movies, it's just well, it's that kind of name unstoppable of. machine, isn't it? It's yeah, like the, it's like the Terminator. It's like all the films have, have drawn on that kind of. I mean, um, I, idea. Arnold Schwarzenegger did base his 
performance on Michael Myers. Yeah. So, yeah, but that's the reason why it's cool. on my list. It's an absolute <laughs> classic. Right, your next film. Yeah, my next film is uh, Frankenstein, which again, 1931. Hard to believe that it's 90 years old. Um, what I forgot to mention earlier was um, Dracula and Frankenstein, what what are known as pre-code horror films. Okay. Um, and for those of, of you who don't know, you might hear that um, terminology. Um, pre-code Hollywood was a brief era in American film history between the widespread adopter, adoption of sound in pictures in 1929 and the enforcement of the Motion Picture Production Code censorship guidelines, popularly known as the Hayes Code, in mid-1934. Although the code was adopted in 1930, oversight was poor, and it did not become rigorously enforced until July 1, 1934, with the establishment of the Production Code Administration, PCA. So quite often films were re-released, or reissued after that date. Mm. So Dracula might have been reissued after 34, and it would right, have to okay. be cut then to comply with uh, uh, the code. But what they used to do back then is they'd take the cut from the original camera negative, mm. and so many of these were lost. Um, but you may find that some version of it existed in the archives around the world, and that's why they've been some films have been able to restore mm. um, to the pre-code versions. And the code existed right up to 1960. So back to Frankenstein. Um, the success of Dracula convinced Carl Emily Jr. to produce more horror films. So I think we all know the plot of Frankenstein. In a village in the Bavarian Alps, Henry Frankenstein and his assistant Fritz, played by Dwight Fry, he's a hunchback. They piece together a human body. Some of the parts are from freshly buried bodies, some from bodies of recently hanged criminals, but he still needs a brain for his creation. At a nearby school, Henry's former teacher, Dr. Wallman, played by Edward Van Sloan, shows his class the brain of an average human being and the corrupted brain of a criminal for comparison. Henry sends Fritz to steal the healthy brain, but he accidentally damages it, so he brings Henry the damaged, uh, the criminal brain. Henry uses a lightning storm to bring the creature to life. The monster, despite its grotesque form, seems to be an innocent childlike creation. The monster kills Fritz and escapes and wanders through the landscape, encountering a farmer's young daughter, Maria. She asks him to play a game with her in which they toss flowers onto a lake. The monster enjoys the game, but when they run out of flowers, he throws Maria into the lake, where she disappears beneath the surface, and the monster runs away. Maria's father arrives carrying his drowned daughter's body. He says she was murdered, and the villagers form a search party to capture the monster. During the search, Henry is attacked by the monster. The monster knocks Henry unconscious, carries him to an old mill. The peasants hear his cries and find the monster has climbed to the top, dragging Henry with him. The monster hurls Henry to the ground, but his fall is broken by the veins of the windmill, saving his life. Some of the villagers carry him home while the rest of the mob set the windmill ablaze, with a monster trapped inside. At Castle Frankenstein, Henry's father celebrates the wedding of his recovered son with a toast to a future grandchild. So this actually wasn't the first screen adaptation of Frankenstein. There was a 1910 Edison Studios production which was a silent short film and starred Charles Ogle as the monster. Um, it was adapted from, like, like Dracula, it was adapted from a 1927 play by Pe Peggy Webling, which in turn was based on the Mary Shelley's 1818 novel. So it was a lot cheaper to film a play because the play, by its nature, would have you know, cut down scenes, cut down cast. So rather than trying to adapt the whole book, 
it was probably cheaper for them to do it that way. Bella Lugosi expressed an interest in playing Henry Frankenstein with Robert Flory directing. The studio, however, wanted Lugosi to play the monster so they could keep his name on the poster. After several unsuccessful makeup tests, both Lugosi and Flory left the film and went to work on Murders in the Rue Morgue. Universal brought in English film director James Whale and offered him his pick of films and he chose Frankenstein and he was allowed to make significant script rewrites. So the Frankenstein in the original script was just going to be a killing machine. Just, yeah. You know, and James Whale rewrote it and made the monster more sympathetic and almost like a victim because you, you actually in the film... Uh, you feel sorry for him. Henry Frankenstein's you? a bit of a dick. Yeah, he is you know, he brings his creature to life. Um, the creature isn't as he wants him to be, so he rejects him, locks him up. Um, and, and basically, yeah, it's like your father rejecting you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, he was. you know, you feel some sympathy for the, yeah. for the monster. Um, so the part of the monster went to probably, again, what is probably one of the legends of horror now, yeah. Boris Karloff. Um Legend has it that Whale was in the studio canteen when he saw Karloff and was fascinated by him and started sketching him with the monster makeup. The makeup actually was created by uh, a guy called Jack Pierce, who did a lot of the makeup for Universal. Um, Frankenstein was a pre-cold film, had to be cut when it was reissued. Uh, the scene of the little girl being drowned, that was um, cut out. There was a scene which was considered blasphemous when Henry speaks the line, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God, so they cut that out. So yeah, it, the the codes um, dealt with things like nudity, sex. Um, criminals weren't allowed to profit from their crimes. Um, What's the point in committing yeah. crime? Then? <laughs> Blasphemy as well. Yeah. So it was very very much about that. Um, the cuts were made from the original negative, but in the nineteen eighties, a copy was found in the British National Film Archive, which enabled it to be restored. And is that how we we're able to watch the full one now? Yeah, because I remember the. the yeah. The version I watched and grew up watching was the one where he, it shows him uh, throwing the girl into yeah. the uh, yeah, river. Yeah, so that was the that's the cut. I mean, there were there were some cuts made to Dracula, but were lost and so okay. never been mm. restored. This film spawned several sequels, including Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, Son of Frankenstein in 1939, which was Karloff's last appearance as a monster, as he felt he was too old to go through the rigorous makeup routine, and it took, like, hours. Yeah, it must have done. I think I, I, think I read something, six to eight hours to put the makeup on, and, like, two hours to take it off. Um, Ghost of Frankenstein 1942 saw Lon Chaney Jr. take over from Karloff. The fifth film, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, saw Bela Lugosi play the monster, which was when his career was in real decline, with Lon Chaney Jr. reprising his role as the Wolfman. And the Universal Horror Series was the first film universe where you had crossovers. So you had like House of Frankenstein, which had featured Dracula, the Wolfman, Frankenstein Monster. You had Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. So you had, you know, this... Well, as a, as a, as yeah. a, as a younger person... All movies are nowadays is yeah. cinematic universes, so that you could say that was the first real big yeah. cinematic universe. Mm-hmm. Even and I doubt a lot of people would even think it would date back that many no, years. No, but where like um, in the fifth film, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Ron Chaney couldn't play both the Frankenstein monster and the Wolfman, <laughs> so he played the Wolfman yeah. and Lugosi then played the monster. So that's kind of how they did it in a way. It's like later films. Um, John Carradine actually played Dracula. 
um, and they had to replace, I think it was um, one of the Abbott and Costello films, Cheney played the Wolfman and a guy called Glenn Strange played Frankenstein's monster. So it was kind of a mix and match mm. of all these different actors. Um, and like I say, it was Lugosi played the monster because his career was really towards the end of his career. Yeah. Um, and so the image of the monster has become part of popular culture. You look, you think about Frank. Anyone says Frankenstein, you think of the Karloff. Yeah, and I mean, even now, you what you say it's like what ninety years, ninety years yeah. ago. Frankenstein's monster is still one of like even Halloween kids are still dressing yeah. up as him, aren't they? So you go into any store and you see a mask and it's it's Frankenstein's monster mm. and it's the Karloff version. Um, they did make one in the nine. I think it was Kenneth Branagh made uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with De Niro as the monster, but it's close to the book. Right, yeah. But I mean, the book um, has Frankenstein pursuing his monster all the way to the Arctic Circle, and so. For a, for a low budget film, you couldn't film right, that. Yeah. You know, like Universal couldn't do that when it was more expensive to send crews, um, you know, on location and that. So, but to me, it, it's I, I love that film. It's when, just when I think of Universal, like that whole yeah. universe, you think of Frankenstein. Yeah. Again, it's you know, kids looking at it now thinks a bit tame and it's not very. But there's also humour in it as well. Um, James Whale. He directed Bride of Frankenstein, which is a follow-up, um, and that's where um, him and a guy called Doctor Pretorius try and build a, a bride, or a, a, a yeah, a, a bride for the monster. Mm. And she, she at the end, when the animator, she rejects him, and he then ends up killing her, them both of them. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's there's way I'll introduce a bit of black humour into it as well so The Bride of Frankenstein is actually considered a horror comedy yeah I, I see a lot of people prefer yeah. that yeah. so yeah but I just the legacy of it the fact they've you know they've tried and reboot it or remake it which and the fact they spoofed it with Young Frankenstein right, as yeah. well um, I think the film has to be popular to be spoofed so yeah, you, well, get, yeah. so you get the references so I think it will always be a popular film just slightly on topic. Yeah. Didn't Mum used to live next to Boris Karloff's widow, or live down the um, same street? He lived somewhere in Sussex, I think, and he lived in a coffin-shaped house. Or the actually had. But yeah, she lived next to it. No, she. Wife. I think she used to work somewhere around there. Right. Yeah. And she used to drive past his house, and the walls around the house were in a coffin shape. That's cool. It. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's my oh, second film. Absolutely iconic. Right, my second film is The Amityville Horror. Uh, it's a 1979 supernatural horror film written by Sander Stern and directed by Stuart Rosenberg. It stars James Brolin, Margot Kidder, Rod Steiger and Murray Hamilton. And now the plot is a family is terrorised by supernatural forces when they move into their new New York State house, which was the scene of a recent mass killing and a former home of an 18th century Satanist. Kathy, played by Kidder, a devout Catholic, asks Father Delaney, played by Steiger, to bless the house. Due to this, swarms of flies appear from nowhere and the pipes and walls begin to ooze slime and blood. George, played by Brolin, starts to deteriorate into insanity, waking up at 3.15am every morning while filling his time splitting logs and keeping the fireplace stoked. Finally, the paranormal events culminate one stormy night. <coughs> Blood oozes from the walls and down the staircase. 
Jody, appearing as a large red-eyed pig, is seen through a window, and George attempts to kill the children with an axe, but regains his wits after Kathy disrupts him. After falling through the basement stairs into a pit of black sludge while rescuing Harry, George and the rest of the family drive away. Abandoning home and belongings. A final intertitle reads, George and Kathleen Lutz and their family never reclaim their house or their personal belongings. Today they live in another state. And now there, there are many reasons why this film was on my list that I'll get into a sec. But first and foremost, I don't know why as a 12 year old I thought this was a good idea to watch this film. Especially as it was that night. This film scared the absolute living shit out of me. I think this movie starts out perfectly showing us Ronald DeFeo Jr. shooting his whole family dead. In my opinion, this starts the film off on the right foot and sets the tone while also explaining a bit about the story of the Amityville ho- like house itself. You know, this film was somewhat a slow burner with something scary out of the ordinary happening from time to time, enough to keep us invested. I think that Stuart Rosenberg deciding to make this film a slow burner was the right choice, however. After the murder scenes at the start, the film's first act introduced the Lutz family. This gives us time to get to know the family and it gives us a chance to actually start to care about them and I think that's really important. Also, as nothing scary really happens in the first part of the film, for me, this creates a massive sense of dread as we know it's only a matter of time before something scary is going to happen. The atmosphere that Rosenberg creates, he fills his film with so much tension, of course during scary scenes, but even I've seen showing the family around the house living their lives. It's almost as if they're being watched by something at all times. I'm going, to get, I'm going to point out some memorable scenes and why they're so effective. The get out scene is both shocking and terrifying at the same time. As Father Delaney makes his way around the house attempting to bless it, he's alone. As he enters one of the upstairs bedrooms, flies start to appear at the window just as this chilling, ominous background soundtrack starts to play. The door in the background shuts by itself. There's so much going on that, for me personally, it makes me uncomfortable as I can't quite process it all at once. And... When, when this happens, it's like maybe in real life when something's going on and loads of things are going around you, you can't quite process. It's quite an uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you want to be in the known, don't you? Yeah. Uh, I think we've all all been through that, haven't we? As this piece of music starts to build, so does the tension. Father Delaney begins to cough and he seems physically affected by all that is happening around him. He pushes through and starts to pray. Midway through his prayer, the door reopens and something whispers, get out. But what's so great about this is that it's very hard to understand what was said, or if anything was said at all. Because through the music building and the father praying, it could have just been our ears interpreting a voice, you know, it was that obscure. For me personally, this made listening my main priority instead of watching, to see if I could hear anything else out of the ordinary. This was bad timing as everything stopped, the flies, the praying and the music. Now the film was silent and with Father Delaney standing quietly in the room, a loud demonic get out completely obliterates the silence. It's annoying because I knew something was going to happen, but all of the preparation in the world couldn't stop me from completely shitting myself, and I'm sure you're the same. This is such a well executed scene, and the perfectly blends atmosphere and the shock factor to truly make this a terrifying scene. The other scene I must talk about is the Jody Demon scene. It actually starts off as a cute little scene of the daughter singing some sort of hymn daughter is in one chair and there is another chair opposite facing her. As Kathy enters the room, she is only facing her daughter. Not noticing the empty chair that was rocking on its own seconds earlier come to a complete stop. The daughter explains that Kathy scared Jodie and that she jumped out the window. As Kathy walks towards the window, we are met with these beaming red eyes looking into the bedroom, accompanied with these demonic, almost pig screech noise. Accompanying scene is this almost psycho-esque score, and that's the one, when I when I rewatched it, Realise how 
close the actual score yeah. during this is actually it sounds like the cycle score and I think it just doesn't do it it just heightens the scene yeah. you know and I'm sure that that scared you didn't it when that's the, the scene I remember the most is the the rocking chair and the, the eyes and the pig <laughs> yeah that's kind of yeah it's very scary isn't it? I mean that's that is a scary thing looking out the window and just seeing a pair of red eyes and then it's, they suddenly disappear once again it's, it's one of those things like this film doesn't do the best thing of, of hiding when scary things are going to happen, but you can't prepare yourself because no. it's that scary, you know? The scene certainly delivers on the scare front, and once again, it plays on this atmospheric, almost shock factor way of scaring us. That's the only way I can describe the tone of this film. All I can say is Rosenberg was going for this, and he more than delivered. I mean, is this a perfect film? No. It's a campy, sometimes over-the-top horror flick, but it's a horror film, and it certainly has its fair share of horror. With it being set in a single house, you can really begin to feel the cramped isolation our characters are feeling. Along with this, you can only feel sorry for them as the townsfolk either don't want to help the family, or they don't believe them. I also think that this movie has helped due to it being based on a real life story, which it does mention many times, doesn't it? I think that's where it got it's a lot not, of press. It's not, it's not based on a real life story. Well, yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? It's, it's, it's um, not based... This is the thing, it's... Um, there was... Ronald DeFeo Jr. was a real person, and yeah, he shot, he murdered his family, didn't he? And he claimed that uh, there was some kind of demonic thing they're going saying on. They're, they're, yeah, these voices and were then, telling him to kill him, his family. Is it the Luzzies moved <clears throat> in? Luzzies, yeah, Luzzies, and they. Well, there's rumours that they couldn't afford the mortgage, so they made it all up so they could get out of the. But the, what I mean by it's, but that, that's what the, this yeah. film used as its as yeah. its press, didn't it? You know. <clears throat> Yeah, the Luzzies, yeah, did live there and they claim that all this it's, stuff happened to it's them. It's kind of, it's kind of, it is based on a true story, kind of, yeah. but they they marketed the film as, oh, this is yeah. really what happened. I think that's what made people flog to the cinemas. Yeah. But it does help add an extra scare factor to the film. I think that both Brolin and Kidder give good performances as our lead characters, particularly Brolin. We see the house's effects through him as he deteriorates from loving dad and family man to a sick and twisted soul who tries to kill his own children. Once he snaps out of this, we're greeted with a brilliant final act on which we see our characters trying to escape the house. It's both thrilling and it certainly gets your heart raising. Overall, this is a brilliant horror movie. You don't watch this film for the cinematography or for how it's shot, etc. You watch it for the scares and atmosphere. And like I said before, it certainly delivers both of these and then some. And that's why it's on my list. Like I said, this yeah. is... If you want to be scared, watch this movie. I don't usually find ghost movies scary yeah. but this is something different again it's not like a bloodbath film no lots of people being murdered it's more psychological and the build up and, I and think that's there what, is jump scares in it as well and yeah so I and think I that think that's what help. people puts people off that yeah. there is I, I, I don't think anyone actually dies in the film you know mm. but it's just once again and, and I, I always go on about it but, but it's a very atmospheric film and for me personally that's the, the most that's the scariest yeah you can be, you know, when and another is set in a single location as well, yeah. and you really do feel uh, the house's pre like you really do feel the house through our characters, and like I said, it's got you focus on the characters. Cause characters is how you through characters, mm. cause they're humans. We're humans. We interpret the feelings, and yeah, it's yeah. just a, it's a brilliant film, and and like I said, it's a bit campy at times, but yeah, if you want to be scared, watch this film, and yeah, that's the reason why it's Good on my choice. list. Thank you. Right. Okay, moving on. My next one is The Mummy, 1932. Yep. So I think, we, again, we all know the plot. Mm. 1921, an archaeological expedition led by Sir Joseph Wemple finds a mummy of an ancient Egyptian high priest named Imhotep. 
played by Boris Karloff. An inspection of the mummy by Wemple's friend Dr. Muller, played again by Edward Van Sloan, here he appears again, reveals that although Imhotep had been wrapped like a traditional mummy, he'd been buried alive. Also buried with Imhotep is a casket with a curse on it. Despite Muller's warnings, Joseph's assistant Ralph Norton opens it and finds an ancient life-giving scroll called the Scroll of Thoth. He translates the symbols and he then reads the words aloud. Imhotep rises and the sight of the, the mummy uh, snaps Norton's mind and causes him to laugh hysterically as the mummy shuffles off with the scroll. Ten years later, Imhotep has assimilated into a mysterious Egyptian historian named Ardeth Bey. He calls upon Sir John's, Joseph's son, Frank, and Professor Pearson and shows them where to dig to find the tomb of the princess, Anks on the Moon. After locating the tomb, the archaeologist presents its treasures to the Cairo Museum and Ardeth Bay disappears. Ardeth soon encounters Helen Grosvenor, a half-Egyptian woman bearing a striking resemblance to Anks on the Moon, and reveals to her that his horrific death was punishment for sacrilege, attempting to resurrect the princess who was his forbidden lover. Believing her to be the re reincarnation of the princess, he attempts to kill her with the intention of mummifying her, resurrecting her and finally making her his immortal bride. Helen is rescued when she remembers her ancestral past life and prays to the goddess Isis to come to her aid. The statue of Isis raises its arm and emits a flash that sets the scroll of Thoth on fire. This breaks a spell that has given Imhotep his immortality, causing him to crumble to dust. Frank calls Helen back to the world of living while the scroll of Thoth continues to burn. So this was the first universal horror film not adapted from an original source. Mm. And it was inspired, obviously, by the 1922 opening of Tutankhamun's tomb and the curse attached. In fact, when Howard Carter opened the sarcophagus of King Tutankhamun in 1925, the actual screenwriter, John L. Balderston, was present as a reporter for the New York World. Jack Pierce created the makeup based on the appearance of Ramses III, and it took eight hours to apply. And so, unlike other Universal monster films, the, mummies had, the Mummy had no official sequels, but rather was reimagined in The Mummy's Hand in 1940 and its sequels, The Mummy's Tomb in 1942, The Mummy's Ghost in 1944, The Mummy's Curse in 1944, and the studio's comedy horror crossover movie, Abbott's Costello Meet the Mummy, in 1955. And it was Lon Chaney Jr. played The Mummy in The Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Ghost, The Mummy's Curse, Again, because uh, Karloff felt he was too old to go through right. the makeup process. And Hammer remade these films in the 1950s. In 1999, The Mummy was remade again, starring Brendan Fraser, and in two sequels. I was going to mention this. Was yeah. are they, Obviously, they're not sequels to the original Mummy, yeah. but are they like soft reboot? Are they. Yeah, I mean, I think the 1999 one was. Um, like a soft reboot, wasn't that it? Goes on about Cause that follows Imhotep and yeah. the Moon. But I think it goes, it's the Book of the Dead, isn't it, rather than the, the yeah. Scroll of Thoth? And then obviously the 2017 Tom Cruise, The Mummy, was planned as the first film in a series of interconnected monster films. So they're going to create to build uh, a it's shared called, universe again. And they're called the Dark called Universe. Dark universe yeah. yeah. And, and unfortunately the film didn't do so well at the box office and it was panned by critics and so they, they decided to shelve the idea of the shared universe oh, and um, concentrate on rebooting the individual films. Movies themselves, yeah. yeah. But again, I mean, The Mummy, just 
by its longevity. I mean, that that was 89 years ago, and they're still making mummy films now. Yeah. Trying to reboot it. So, again, it's the legacy. Um, and when you talk about Universal Monsters, it's Dracula, Frankenstein, the Mummy, the mummy and the Wolfman. That's the four main ones. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's just its legacy that is left as well. And most, like, like you said, most of the films that came after it are based on that. Mm. kind of familiar story and they're huge films as well so yeah. it shows that people are because I know a lot of people are into that mm. Egyptian mythology yeah. aren't they yeah definitely I just wish we could have seen where a dark universe a modern yeah universe it would have monsters. been interesting yeah to have the crossovers and uh, like they did back then hopefully they can still do that <laughs> but yeah no actually I've watched The Mummy before and I remember yeah. I think I remember like it's been years since I watched that but I might have to watch it again yeah but, okay cool my, my next film is Alien it's a 1979 science fiction horror film written by Dan O'Bannon and directed by Ridley Scott. It stars Sigourney Weaver, Ian Holm, John Hurt and Tom Skerritt. The plot? In deep space, the crew of the commercial starship Nostromo is awakened from their cryosleep capsules halfway through their journey home to investigate a distress call from an alien vessel. The terror begins when the crew encounters a nest of eggs inside the alien ship. An organism from inside an egg leaps out and attaches itself to one of the crew, causing them to fall into a coma. The alien is birthed and proceeds to terrorise the crew, picking each crew member off one by one. Now, like the Amityville horror, Alien is very much a slow burn of a film. The whole first act focuses on the plot. You know, why they've been awakened and also our characters, it focuses on the characters. For a decent sized main cast, Ridley Scott does a great job of establishing each and every one of our main characters. They all have their own personalities, they aren't just cardboard cows shoved into a plot. Sigourney Weaver puts an iconic performance of the main character, Ellen Ripley. I mean, when talking about female main characters, she is the standard. She's very different in each of the Alien sequels. In this first one, she uses her intelligence and strategic powers to outsmart the Xenomorph. In my opinion, Ripley is one of, if not the greatest female protagonist of all time. You know, she's competent, smart and a very likeable character. She's a complete badass, but she still is fragile and emotional, and she still keeps her femininity. A lot of modern films fall short by making female characters Mary Sue's. Do you know what Mary Sue is? No. It's just it's just a a character that is just powerful for the sake of it. Is think right. of like um, yeah. Captain Marvel, or right? Not. Okay. I see. Or totally one dimensional, with only one emotion. That emotion being hard as nails and nothing else. Ripley has struggles that she needs to overcome. Her struggle, obviously, being the xenomorph. To me, this is how you write the perfect, not just female character, but the perfect movie character. Now, once the film establishes the characters, it moves on to the scenes of the Xenomorph, and these are some of the finest scenes in film. Before I talk about said Xenomorph, I'm going to talk about the main setting of the film, the Nostromo. The Nostromo is the perfect setting for a horror film. The Nostromo evokes feelings of claustrophobia and the cramped dark hallways of the stuff and nightmares. This film started the whole craze of a cramped location stuck in a, with an unstoppable force. It's been re replicated many times since, but no movie has even come close. Now onto the Xenomorph. In my opinion, it is the perfect antagonist for this type of film. It is unstoppable, deadly and hellbent on destroying anything or anyone that gets in its way. I also think the actual look of the Xenomorph is great. Nick Yilder was certainly on his A-game when he designed the extraterrestrial. It doesn't look dated at all, with a sleek exoskeleton and great slime effects. He certainly hit the nail on the head. Speaking of the Xenomorph, this film is very unsettling due to the fact no matter the scene, we know it's lurking somewhere around the ship, waiting to strike. Due to the Nostromo size, our main characters are never that far away from the killing machine. I think the facehuggers are a smart, terrifying way to get the alien inside a host. 
They're terrifying, but when we first see them as eggs, we are just as dumbfounded as John Hurt himself. They aren't necessarily a threat. Of course, it's changing once it hatches. The third act in this film is both thrilling and chilling. Ripley alone must use her wits to survive the xenomorph. It's the perfect ending to a film this great. Like I said before, Alien is the premier science fiction and horror film. There's a reason why even after all these years it hasn't been matched, not even close. And that's the reason why it's on my list. Yeah, it's a great film. Like I said, just from the fact that it's uh, 40 years old and it's mm. still not been matched at all. Well, it's kind of timeless because it is science fiction, I guess. So, you know... Um, yeah, it, it doesn't look dated <coughs> at no. all, does it? And it's... Um, it's again, it's that, like you say, it's people trapped in that one location, able to escape with that basic killing machine. Uh, yeah, unstoppable force um, sort of thing. I mean, it's claustrophobic. It's really scary because, like, this the ship is full of places for the xenomorph to hide. Yeah. Think about the vents you know, as the well, the vents and the pipes and everything. Mm. And then you've also got the cat loose, which does add yeah. to a couple of jump scares as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it does. It's like you say, a slow burner. Um, it builds attention though, and I think it is. Yeah, it's one of certainly one of my favourite films yeah, yeah. of all time. Never mind, just horror genre. Yeah, mine too. Cool. So moving on, this is where it all started for me. Um, mm. It's one of only two films that are non-universal on my list. Okay, yep. And that's King Kong, nineteen thirty-three. I think we all know the plot, but I'll just go through it again. Mm. In New York Harbor, filmmaker Carl Denham, known for wildlife films in remote and exotic locations, charters Captain Eaglehorn's Engelhorn's ship, the Venture, for his new project. However, he's unable to secure an actress for a female role. He's been reluctant to disclose. Searching in the streets of New York City, he finds Anne Darrow and promises her, her the adventure of a lifetime. The crew boards the venture and sets off during which the ship's first mate, Jack Driscoll, falls in love with Anne. Denham reveals to the crew that their destination is in fact Skull Island, an uncharted territory. It alludes to a mysterious entity named Kong, rumoured to dwell on the island. The crew arrives at the island and anchors offshore. Going ashore, they encounter a native village separated from the rest of the island by an enormous stone wall with a large wooden gate. They witness a group of natives preparing to sacrifice a young woman termed the Bride of Kong. The intruders are spotted and the native chief stops the ceremony when he sees Anne. He offers to trade six of his tribal women for the golden woman. They rebuff him and return to the venture. That night the natives kidnap Anne from the ship and take her through the gate and onto the altar where she is offered to King Kong, an enormous gorilla-like creature. Kong carries a terrified Anne away as Denham and Jack and some volunteers enter the jungle in hopes of rescuing her. They encounter a living dinosaur, a charging Stegosaurus which they manage to kill. After facing the aggressive Brontosaurus and Kong himself, Jack and Denim are the only survivors. A Tyrannosaurus Rex attacks Anne and Kong, but Kong kills it in battle. Jack continues to follow them while Denim returns to the village for more men. Upon arriving in Kong's lair, Anne is menaced by a snake-like Elasmosaurus, which Kong also kills. While Kong is distracted killing a pterodon that tried to fly away with Anne, Jack reaches her and they climb down a vine dangling from a cliff edge. They run through the jungle and back to the village where Denham, Engelhorn and the surviving crewmen are waiting. Kong, following, breaks open the gate and relentlessly rampages through the village. On shore, Denham, now determined to bring Kong back alive, knocks him unconscious with a gas bomb. Shackled in chains, Kong is taken to New York City and presented to a Broadway theatre audience as Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. Anne and Jack are brought on stage to join him, surrounded by a group of press photographers. Kong, believing that the ensuing flash photography is an attack 
breaks loose as the audience flees in horror. And is whisked away to a hotel room on a high floor, but Kong, scaling the building, soon finds her. He rampages through the city and climbs the Empire State Building. At its top, he's attacked by four airplanes. Kong destroys one, but finally succumbs to their gunfire. He gazes at Anne one last time before falling to his death. Denham arrives and pushes through a crowd surrounding Kong's corpse in the street. When a policeman remarks that the planes got him, Denham tells him no. It wasn't the airplanes, it was Beauty Killed the Beast. The end. <laughs> <laughs> now, like I said, I saw that I must have been only about four years old, mm. and it really had such an impact on me. I mean, what, what's not to like? You've got... Uh, a big monkey. You've got a sea voyage. Uh, you've got adventure. You've got a big-ass monkey. So <laughs> a big-ass monk, yeah, mate. Yeah. yeah. So... King Kong um, was the brainchild of, of a guy called Marion C. Cooper. He was actually a former pilot and adventurer who got his start in film with the Explorers Club, travelling the world and documenting his adventures. So similar to Denham in the in the actual story. Um, in the early 20th century, few zoos had primate exhibits, so there was popular demand to see primates on films. Cooper's initial idea depicted a gorilla battling Komodo dragons and included a lone woman on an expedition to appease those critics who berated him for neglecting romance in his films. A remote island would be the setting and the gorilla would have a spectacular death in New York City. Cooper took his concept to Paramount Studios but executives shied away from a project that sent film crews on costly shoots to Africa and Komodo. So this he planned for it to be like a live action film right, with yeah. gorillas and Komodo dragons, and then he'd film the actual fighting um, in the studio with like I don't know, probably stop motion and yeah. that. But anyway, um, in 1931, David O. Selznick brought Cooper to RKO as his executive assistant and promised him he could make his own films. Cooper began immediately developing the most dangerous game and hired Ernest B. Schurdstack to direct. A huge jungle jungle sage set was built, with Robert Armstrong and Faye Ray as the stars. So, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the most dangerous game. No. Um, it's where a guy on a private island purposefully wrecks ships and hunts the survivors as game. Um, it's mentioned in um, Fincher's film Zodiac. You remember that? No. No. no, no. If you watch that, it's mentioned that because. I've seen I've seen Zodiac. Yeah. I just don't know. I don't know. Okay, so once the film was underway, Cooper turned his attention to the studio's big budget, out of control fantasy called Creation, which is a project with stop motion animator Willis O'Brien about a group of travellers shipwrecked on an island of dinosaurs. Willis O'Brien had created cutting edge stop motion effects for a 1925 adaptation of Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, featuring dinosaurs. When Cooper screened O'Brien's stop-motion creation footage, he was unimpressed but realised he could economically make his gorilla picture by scrapping the Komodo dragons and costly location shoots for O'Brien's animated dinosaurs and the studio's existing jungle set. So they actually shot Kong on the set of the most dangerous game at the same time. Right. Because mm. Robert Armstrong and Fay Ray were both in both films as well. So that was to, to cut costs, and then they replaced the live action with um, animated. Mm. And this was the first film to use a completely original score written by composer Max Steiner. So before that, in the silent era, um, they would have uh, an in-house pianist or orchestra would actually play music yeah. along with the film. And this was mainly, initially, to cover the sound of the actual projector. 
because it was it would be in the room and it'd be on um it wouldn't be enclosed and mm. so it would the mechanical sound of that um and then when obviously when sound pictures came in um not not many of the early sound pictures had a, had a score they'd have music over the start music over the end titles um but audience would get confused if music cropped up in the middle of a film because they'd like where's it coming from right yeah and they think it would be part of the story um and then later on, they they would introduce set, uh, music into films, but it would be pre-existing music, so like classical music and that. Okay, yeah. And so this was the first film where there was actually a score was specifically written for it. Um, the Son of Kong was a direct sequel to the 1933 film. Was released nine months after the first film was released. Um, and that had Carl Denning going back to Skull Island and finding a um, King Kong Jr. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think it's a similar kind of story to that. Um, in the early 1960s, RKO licensed King Kong character to Japanese studio Toho, which was they made Godzilla, and they produced two King Kong films. So King Kong versus Godzilla, which was also the f- f- third film in Toho's long-running Godzilla series, which has been rebooted. Yeah. And also King Kong Escapes, uh, both directed by Shiro Honda. These two films are mostly unrelated to the original and follow a very different style. In 1976, Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis uh, released his version of King Kong, and that was a modern remake of the 1933 film, following the same basic plot but moving the setting to the present day and changing many details. Uh, That actually starred Jeff Bridges. Uh, the remake was followed by a sequel in 1986 titled King Kong Lives. And then we know now in 2005 Universal Pictures released another remake of King Kong, co-written and directed by Peter Jackson, which is set in 1933 as in the original film. And that follows a lot of the plot of the original film. Right, yeah. And then Legendary Pictures and Warner Brothers released a Kong reboot film titled Kong Skull Island in 2017. And it's the second instalment of Legendary's Monsterverse with a sequel, Godzilla vs. Kong, released in 2021, marking the second time Kong fights Godzilla. So again, it's one of those characters that is just reoccurring and is constantly being yeah. rebooted and remade. Well, literally this year there was one Yeah, and the sh- obviously released. the shared universe now between Godzilla and Kong, that's yeah. not new, that was done in the 60s with Toho, Studio Toho. So, yeah, I think, again, it's one of those... You know, you say King Kong, and you know what, what Everyone King, knows Kong, Kong yeah. is, uh, Kong is. So, and it, it, again, it's one of my favourite, I guess, of the films. I think well, he was a monk, mate. Yeah, yeah I started it off. Mm. I think for me, that's uh, no, classic again. <laughs> right, my next film is The Shining. Uh, it's a 1980 mystery horror film written and directed by Stanley Kubrick. It's based on the Stephen King novel of the same name. It stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall and Danny Lloyd. The plot, Jack Torrance, played by Nicholson, becomes winter caretaker at the isolated Overlook Hotel in Colorado, hoping to cure his writer's block. He settles in along with his wife, Wendy, played by Duvall, and his son, Danny, played by Lloyd, who's played by psychic premonitions. As Jack writing goes nowhere and Danny's visions become more disturbing, Jack discovers the hotel's dark secrets and begins to unravel into a homicidal maniac hell-bent on terrorising his family. Now, to me, The Shining is a film that I really didn't care too much for the first time I saw it. 
In fact, it took several viewings before I'd even call the film good. It took several more for me to love the film, and now I'm at the point where I call it one of the greatest movies of its genre. For my money, what's so amazing about this film is the sheer terror and atmosphere that Kubrick creates. The entire movie has a very claustrophobic feel to it, and no matter how many times you watch it, you can sink back into it as if it was your first time seeing it. You may know the story, the twists, and what happens, but no matter how many times you see it, you always feel as if you're seeing something for the first time. That's a huge compliment, and I think that's the reason Kubrick's films always work the more times you watch them. I think the film manages to be one of the scariest pictures ever made, and especially the scenes with Danny riding around on his bike and running into the twin girls. The creepiness of what Jack finds in one of the rooms is just as good. The various ghostly images that are seen throughout the picture are incredibly effective. Even more impressive is that Kubrick has made a horror film that takes place during the day, in the light, and doesn't try to use darkness to build up any horror. Nicholson is one of the greatest actors of all time, and for years people debated his performance here. Many found it to be over the top, and I used to be one of them, but now over time I've come to realise that the performance is just follows. Does it make sense all the time? No, but neither does the story, and the two work perfectly together because your mind, go, your mind can go into overdrive trying to find out what, th what the various things are happening in this movie. Deval Lloyd, Joe Turkle, Barry Nelson and Scatman Crothers are all very good as well. The Shining isn't, e isn't the easiest movie to watch and there's no question that you must pay attention to it throughout the long running time. With, with that said to me, it's one of the greatest films of its genre and it's one that continues to get richer and better no matter how, no matter how many times you see it. These are the many reasons why it's on my list. So this one's short and simple, but yeah, yeah I just... I agree. I think the fact that um, <clears throat> The Shining really has made its way into popular culture. Yeah. Um, you see like The Simpsons did it. Yeah, like, yeah. And... You know the the here's Johnny and all that. Yeah. You know a lot of the lines are very quotable. Yeah. You know, I'll work and I'll play. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, the the, the iconic um, twins as well is is very very scary because you're never sure what's you know like a lot of it is in his his mind, isn't yeah. it? And you're not quite sure what's real and what isn't. I just, and, I just, and that's kind of good as well. I think the shiny is just you don't. It's so crazy. You don't know what's. Yeah. You know where the movie's gonna turn, and it could could be anything you know and, and it almost feels like once as I mentioned before you watch it again it could be something different it's that, yeah. that crazy yeah. but yeah it's this amazing horror film and, and it, it is one that certainly gets your screen yeah. crawling done it so again it's that it's that uh, trope of being trapped yeah in, I've got a running theme in a situation you can't get away from you know, and it, you, you're isolated, and it. it oh, so I, 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 in movies, I'm I'm all about the characters. I love how Kubrick slowly uh, shows Jack's descent into like what into make into yeah. making him a psycho. Mm -hmm. and I love that. It's gradual. He takes its time because he takes his time, makes it more impactful. And yeah, it's it's one of the best of his genre, certainly. Yeah, and it just just shows why Kubrick's one of the best of all time. Mm -hmm. So. Really good. Okay, my next one is a film you've mentioned, mm. uh, The Invisible Man, well, 1933. Yeah. I think um, this is probably not quite overlooked as a universal horror film, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, because like you said, the the Wolfman, Mummy, yeah. Frankenstein's Monster and Jack Lark are yeah. the big four. Yeah. But The Invisible Man... I mean, it's yeah. not exactly a monster, it is a person, but what it does is kind of monstrous. In the way I, I suppose the universal icons, yeah. yeah. You, the Invisible Man is sort of overlooked, mm. isn't he? So the plot, so on a snowy night, a stranger, his face swathed in bandages and his eyes obscured by dark goggles, takes a room that lions head in, in the English village of Iping in Sussex, which I don't think exists. I think yeah, I've never heard of it. 
the man demands to be left alone. Later, the innkeeper, Mr. Hall, is sent by his wife to evict the stranger after he's made a huge mess in his room while doing research and has fallen behind on his rent. Angered, the stranger throws Mr. Hall down the stairs. Confronted by a policeman and some local civilians, he removes his bandages and goggles, revealing he is invisible, laughing maniacally. He takes off his clothes, making himself completely undetectable, and drives off his tormentors before fleeing into the countryside. The stranger is Dr. Jack Griffin, a chemist who discovered the secret of invisibility while conducting a series of tests involved, involving an obscure drug called monocaine. On the evening of his escape from the inn, Griffin turns up at his colleague Dr. Kemp's house. He forces Kemp to become his visible partner in a plot to dominate the world through a reign of terror beginning with a few murders here and there. They drive back to the inn to retrieve his notebooks on the invisibility process. Sneaking inside, Griffin finds a police inquiry underway conducted by an official who believes it's all a hoax. After securing his books, Griffin angrily attacks and kills the officer, then goes on a killing spree. He causes the derailment of the train, resulting in a hundred deaths, and throws two volunteer searchers off a cliff. A snowstorm forces Griffin to seek shelter in a barn where he falls asleep, where a farmer enters and spots movement in the hay where Griffin is sleeping, and notifies the police, who rush out to the farm and surround the barn. They set fire to the building, which forces Griffin to come out, leaving visible footprints in the snow. The chief detective opens fire, mortally wounding Griffin, so he is taken to hospital where hours later he is dying and asking to see his fiancée Flora. On his deathbed, Griffin admits to Flora, I meddled in things that man must leave alone. As he dies, his body, is quickly, his body quickly becomes visible again. So that's the plot. Um, the Invisible Man was in development for Universal as early as 1931, when it was suggested that H.G. Wells' novel would make a good follow-up to the studio's horror film Dracula. Universal opted to make Frankenstein in 1931 instead. Universal bought the rights to The Invisible Man from Wells on September 2, 1931 for $10,000, and he demanded final script approval from Universal. This led to several screenplay adaptations being written and several potential directors all signing on to develop the project, intending it to be a film for Boris Karloff, although Bella Lugosi had already been considered. So this was kind of in a bit of a development hell for a few years. Right, yeah. Frankenstein director James Whale eventually signed on. He'd been attached on and off, and his screenwriting colleague R.C. Sheriff developed a script in London. Karloff left the film and was replaced by the then relatively unknown stage actor Claude Rains. Rains had considered giving up acting as he hadn't been able to make a decent living from stage work. Rains' career benefited greatly from his role in the film, allowing him to become one of Hollywood's most valuable actors. It led him to roles such as in The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, he played King John, and Casablanca. Universal revived an invisible man character for future films, but did not attempt to connect the films with any direct storyline, as they had done with other films such as The Mummy or Frankenstein. Examples of these connections include The Invisible Man Returns in 1940, starring Vincent Price, where the story says he receives the invisibility formula from a relative of the character from the first film. So, although they had sequels and other... They weren't direct sequels, they were similar... Right. They just had an invisible man. In. Right, yeah. Um, unlike other Universal properties, the Invisible Man did not receive any immediate remakes such as those done by Hammer Film Productions. In February 2016, it was announced that Johnny Depp would star in a remake as part of Universal's Dark Universe. After the mummy bomb, development was halted. Instead of a shared universe, they would focus on individual films. 
So in 2019, Universal announced and began production on the new The Invisible Man that was written and directed by Lee Wannell, which was released in February 2020 to positive reviews. Now, you said you'd seen that. I've seen you it. didn't think it was I don't, that I don't great. Actually, I don't actually think it was that good. No. They, um, obviously, the, the, the original was... He drank. He had a potion, didn't he? Some yeah. sort of potion. Well, this one, uh, he had the suit, and it like projected what was behind it, right? Okay. In each direction, yeah. so it yeah. like it was. I don't yeah. know, it was. It was. A, it was. I'd say a run of the mill 2010s horror movie. Yeah. There we go. It was nothing special. Right. Nothing like the original. Yeah. Um, it didn't have the charm of the original. I know it sometimes helps because they're older, but mm. didn't have the charm. Didn't have the. I tell you what. Like I said. It didn't have the anywhere near the atmosphere or the or the the angst I felt while mm-hmm. watching it. You know, um, it didn't have the comedic aspect because there's quite yeah, a few comedic is. aspects yeah. in yeah. there. You know, just yeah. <laughs> um, who they? Uh, who's the guy that he forces to team up team up with him? Uh, who's that? That's Doctor Kemp. And when they uh, Joe, when they try and escort him, there's all these police hanging yeah. around, like literally circling around him they have these nets everywhere to make sure he's not in the room uh, one of the police chiefs dies doesn't he because yeah. he gets a chair yeah. thrown at him or something yeah that's right yeah. it's just I don't know it just has a special yeah. certain charm about it which the which the, the new one just yeah. doesn't have well it's like you were saying I mean it's um, the, the idea of disembodied voice is, is really scary mm. but it's about a guy who he makes himself invisible and he starts off playing pranks on people, yeah. and then he, he slowly goes insane and devolves from that into murder, and then into this idea of world domination. Well, it's it's a it's a it's a force that you can't fight back. Yeah. It's going to kill you. And like I said, it's just the fact that you can hear this guy. This guy's crazy. He wants to take over the world, and he murders people, and yeah. you can't do anything about it, which is just yeah. really unsettling to and, me. You know, special effects were cutting edge. To do to do what they did with practical effects, as he there's a scene where he takes off his bandages on yeah. his head, and you do, know, do you know how they did that? They had to slice, they had to splice together three different. They they shot the film three different times, and they had to cut out physically cut out yeah. the film, stick them together, and so they cut out his head. They'd also make um, Claude. He'd, he'd wear um, like felt is it yeah and they'd have a felt background so you can't see his head yeah it's so amazing how they did the, those effects you know nowadays you could just photoshop them out but back mm. then there's actual so much thought put into it and so much effort and it really does look brilliant doesn't yeah, it to be it fair does. yeah and i think it's what it does stand up I yeah think, uh, oh yeah 100 percent. you know definitely you could you could get a really shitty green screen nowadays <laughs> it'll look it'll look worse than yeah. that you know what i mean yeah. but yeah now the invisible man like i said it's almost a forgotten movie but it's mm. a, I, I, I think it's for as as far as classic horror goes it's a masterpiece so yeah, yeah. I agree ah good film right my next is The Thing uh, The Thing is a 1982 science fiction horror movie written by Bill Lancaster directed by John Carpenter it stars Kurt Russell Keith David Wilford Brimley and Donald Moffat <clears throat> the plot in remote Antarctica, a group of American research scientists are disturbed at their base camp by a helicopter shooting at a sled dog. When they take in the dog, it brutally attacks both human beings and canines in the camp, and they discover that the beast can assume the shape of its victims. A resourceful helicopter pilot and the camp doctor lead the camp crew in a desperate, gory battle against the vicious creature before it picks them all off, one by one. 
And now, like Halloween, John Carpenter's style is woven throughout this film. Everything from the atmosphere to the score, you can't escape it. It's this atmosphere in which this film is built on. Before I get into the atmosphere, I'm going to talk about the characters. The first act of the film sets up an important part of the plot. The scene in which the Norwegians chase the husky. It's both thrilling and mysterious. Why are they chasing this husky? We don't know, so already Carpenter already implements some sort of confusion. Once this scene comes to an end, we have a mostly character-heavy first act in which we see our main characters living their lives. This is something that Carpenter does best. He shows us, instead of tells us, it's organic and natural, and by the end of this first act we already know a lot about our main characters. The lead, RJ McCready, played by Kurt Russell, is a rough around the edges, bad-mannered cowboy hat-wearing anti-hero. The cheating bitch scene is the first real scene we see of McCready in the film. The scene is gen genius because in less than a minute, Carpenter is able to show us what type of a character McCready is. When we move into the second act of the film, we see the thing. It happened to be the husky running away from the Norwegians at the start. When the thing mutates, we are introduced to Rob Button's world-class practical effects. It's these effects that were revolutionary at the time, and haven't been topped since. Now onto the atmosphere of this film. The Antarctic setting evokes feelings of isolation. It's not as if our characters can drop everything and run to safety. The base is very cramped and claustrophobic. That's chilling enough, let alone with the killer extraterrestrial on the loose. It only heightens things. I want to point out a particular scene, the scene with the Petri dishes. At the start of the film, our characters have great relationships with each other, working together obviously, whilst also exchanging banter. As the film goes on, and the workers are picked off, we start to gradually see these relationships deteriorate, due to the fact that no one knows who the thing is. This is because the thing can replicate the cells of its victims. The Petri dishes scene is where we fully see this tension between our main characters come to light. There's no trust between them, I'd even go as far to say paranoia between them as well, and there's an unsettling mood surrounding the scene. As McCready goes from one Petri dish to the next, it only heightens the tension until we get one of the greatest jump scares in movie history. As Palmer's blood reacts to the flamethrower, he is revealed as the thing. Once again we see the talent Rob Bottom possesses in his practical effects. Another great jump scare is the defibrillator scene, where once again we see Rob Bottom's brilliant work. I love the ending of this film, it is both thrilling and bone chilling. We see McCready blow up the thing, in doing so he also blows up the base. After the thing is supposedly killed, we see McCready joined by Charles, who mysteriously disappeared earlier in the movie. They are both seated as they share a bottle of whiskey, they both start laughing and the film ends. This is, and I can't get this across enough, the perfect ending to this movie. It isn't a happy ending nor is it sad. It is filled with what paranoia and tension synonymous with this film. For all we know, either our main character could be the thing, or they could be human, we just don't know. Either way, they are doomed, because eventually they'll be taken by the elements. If this would have been a happy ending, I don't think this film would be as good as it is. The ending is that impactful. Finally, The Thing is, in my opinion, the greatest all-out horror movie, a masterpiece of the art, and one that finally got the praise it deserved years after it came out, and that's why it's on my list. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a great film. We've, we've talked about The Thing before in yeah. other podcasts. Um when it first came out, it was absolutely panned, wasn't yeah. it? I mean, I, I believe one critic called it possibly the worst film ever made. Yeah. They've since know. revisited their review. And now it's considered a classic, yeah, isn't it? They consider it a classic. Um, I don't think you could have, you could have, like you say, you couldn't really have finished that film in a in a, a better, better way, way yeah. because it's that ambiguity that is, is the the cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of people like. Um, they like, like it. They like a happy ending. They, they like it to be sort of tied up into a neat. You know, yeah. he, he either kills the thing or he becomes the thing. The not knowing element. Sometimes it's people so, don't like that. It's so impactful, it though, is. isn't it? You know, and it's sort and of. It's, they're both laughing. They they, yeah. they both know they could either be the thing, and yeah. 
It's like they just oh, share a bottle of whiskey. Yeah, they know it. They know that if they're human, they're going to die anyway. Yeah. They're going to freeze to death. And if they're the thing, then they're going to freeze and be probably yeah. brought back to life again. That's so, true. yeah. So, but you know that is yeah. honestly, I, I can't, I can't tell. Well, I mean, it's a favorite of ours, isn't it? and yeah. I can't get yeah. enough. This is a masterpiece, yeah. not just of a horror film, but it's one of the greatest films of all time, in my yeah. opinion. And yeah, that's the reason why it's on my list. Great film. Okay, moving on. My next film is Werewolf of London, which is 1935. Um, it's a lesson. It's the first Universal werewolf film, and probably a lesser-known film. Um, but I remember seeing it when I was. Like I say, when I was younger, yeah, um, and it doesn't get shown a lot. I'm not sure. I've never heard of it. It wasn't as successful as the later Wolfman. Yeah. So the plot: Wilfred Glendon is a wealthy and world-renowned English botanist who journeys to Tibet in search of an extremely rare plant. While there, he's attacked and bitten by a creature later revealed to be a werewolf. Although he succeeds in acquiring a specimen of the plant, once back home in London, he's approached by a fellow botanist, Doctor Yagami who claims to have met him in Tibet while also seeking the plant. Yagami warns Glendon that the bite of a werewolf would cause him to become a werewolf as well, adding that the blossom from the plant is a temporary antidote for the disease. During the full moon that night, Glendon starts to turn into a werewolf but uses the blossom from the plant to stop his transformation. At the next full moon, he attempts to use the plant again but finds Dr. Yagami, who is revealed to be a werewolf, has broken into his lab and stolen the only two blossoms. As the third has not yet bloomed, Glendon is out of luck. Driven by an instinctive desire to hunt and kill, he ventures out into the dark city, killing an innocent girl. Burdened by remorse, Glendon begins neglecting Lisa, his wife, and makes numerous futile attempts to lock himself up far away from home, including renting a room at an inn. However, whenever he transforms into the werewolf, he escapes and kills again. After a time, the third blossom of the plant finally blooms, but much to Glendon's horror, it's stolen by Yagami, sneaking into the lab while Glendon's back's turned. Catching Yagami in the act, Glendon finally realises that Yagami was the werewolf that attacked him in Tibet. After turning into the werewolf yet again and killing Yagami, Glendon goes to the house in search of Lisa, for the werewolf instinctively seeks to destroy that which it loves the most. That's kind of the werewolf law for that yeah. thing. Glendon breaks into the house and corners Lisa on the staircase and is about to move in for the kill when Colonel Sir Thomas Forsyth of Scotland Yard, arriving with several police officers in tow, shoots Glendon. As he lies dying at the bottom of the stairs, Glendon, still in werewolf form, speaks, first to thank Colonel Forsyth for the merciful bullet, then saying goodbye to Lisa, apologising that he could not have made her happier. Glendon then dies, reverting to his human form in death. Um... The reason that I've included this film is it's the first Hollywood mainstream film to feature a werewolf. Mm. Um, the werewolf is a widespread concept in European folklore developed during the medieval period and spread to the New World with colonialism. A werewolf, sometimes called a lycanthrope, can shapeshift or transform into a wolf either on purpose or being placed under a curse, usually by being bitten or scratched by another werewolf, with a transformation taking place on the night of a full moon. Belief in werewolves developed in parallel to the belief in witches, and suspected werewolves were put on trial. This peaked in the 17th century and had subsided by the 18th century. So you actually had people being murdered or, or killed because they thought they were a werewolf, similar to witches. Um, and again, it's, it's, this is a film, another film that's not adapted from an original story. It's taking European folklore yeah. and, and using that. 
Um, Wheel for London introduced a hybrid hominoid wolf where the character doesn't completely transform into a wolf but a human wolf hybrid. Jack Pierce again, he, he designed the makeup um, for Henry Hull um, and that resembled that that was used later for Lon Chaney Jr. in The Wolfman but was rejected in favour of a minimalist approach. So basically, Jack Pierce created this makeup for Hull, he didn't yeah. like it. So Pierce later used it for the Wolfman film. Mm. Although it's often been reported that this was because Hull was unwilling to spend hours having makeup applied, or because he didn't want his face obscured because of vanity, the real reason was that, according to the script, the werewolf had to be recognisable to the other characters as Doctor Glendon. This would not have been possible under the more extreme makeup. The werewolf's howl was an audio blend of Hull and the recording of a real Timberwolf, an approach which was never duplicated in any subsequent werewolf film. And this film inspired the 1981 um, comedy horror, I think it is, An American Werewolf in London, directed by John Landis. So that's kind of its impact. And I guess without this film, we maybe wouldn't have had The Wolfman as well. And although this wasn't as commercially successful as The Wolfman, it proved that there was an appetite for werewolf films. Well, I always thought the the original was The Wolfman. I didn't realise there was one previous to that. So... Very interesting, wasn't it? Learned something new there. Well, I do like. I mean, I've got to say that werewolves are probably one of my favourite monsters as well. I remember at Universal, that was the one thing yeah, that scared yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. We went to uh, 2019. Went to Halloween Horror Nights, um, and they had a classic monsters yeah. haunted house, and that was great because they had the you know you had the Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, Mummy, I think Creature from the Lap yeah, was there as well. I just remember yeah. we were walking along and, <laughs> and to the left, the Wolfman just jumps out of nowhere, yeah. scared him shit. Yeah. And I remember uh, as we were walking <laughs> to the end, so they basically had these like black curtains you'd go and that would signify that you finished the maze. They they put, they put Frankenstein's monster there just to give you one last yeah. scare. I was right. scared by over shit. Yeah. So... Yeah, yeah, if you're a fan of of horror, yeah. go there. Because the the new Universal um, theme park they're building yeah. is going to feature, it's going to have a classic monsters um, land, yeah, and it's going to feature them quite heavily. So if you do like Universal classic monsters, that's somewhere to go, definitely. Hundred percent. Mike, my next film is A Nightmare on Elm Street. <clears throat> it's a 1984 horror mystery film written and directed by Wes Craven. It stars Heather Lennonkamp, Robert England, Johnny Depp and Renee Blackley. The plot. Several Midwestern teenagers fall prey to Freddy Krueger, a disfigured midnight mangler who preys on the teenagers in their dreams, which in turn kills them in reality. After investigating the phenomenon, Nancy begins to suspect that a dark secret kept by her and her parents, friend's parents may be the key to unravelling the mystery, but can Nancy and her boyfriend Glenn solve the puzzle before it's too late? Right now, Halloween started the slasher craze of the 80s. Friday the 13th kicked the door off its hinges, but the hype almost died out as quick as it materialised. By 1984, slashers were done to death. Halloween, Christmas, Valentine's Day, April Fool's Day, birthday, they'd run their course. It had been a long time since the slasher showed any flicker of imagination. That is until Wes Craven took to the genre. I'm just going to say now, A Nightmare on Elm Street, in my opinion, is a masterpiece of its genre. That is what happens when you get a world-class writer-director with an original idea. A running theme, I'm going to talk about the opening scene in this film. The scene shows Freddy making his iconic finger knives. 
While this is happening, we hear the chilling score by Charles Bernstein. Certainly one of the best of all time. This scene is so impactful as we learn so much about Freddy, even, th even though from a first watch it may not seem like there's much going on. We see his living conditions, dirty, grimy and groggy, words that could describe Freddy, while we can hear his heavy breathing. This paints Freddy to be an odd character. The first real character we're introduced to is Tina, played by Amanda Wiss. We see her walking through a residential back street. A bin lid is thrown into her path as she hears something behind her. The noise happens to be Freddy Krueger. As Freddy menacingly makes his way towards Tina, he lets out an evil laugh. He stretches his arms out to the side, then growing every second till his wingspan is the same width as the street he's stood on. Tina lets out a please God. Freddy's response, this is God. He begins to chase her and he eventually catches up to her. We're then greeted with her boyfriend who was awakened by her screaming. It appears that it was all a nightmare. As until her shirt is torn open and she is scratched. How many fingers you ask? Four. The same number of finger knives is on, on, is on Freddy's glove. She starts to bleed profusely and is lifted up into the air. She is flung about, even hitting her boyfriend in the process. She is seen struggling on the ceiling, of course letting out yells of pain, before she lands back onto her bed. She is dead. This is a very shocking scene, even hard to watch at times. Of course the violence and gore plays a big part in this, but the most shocking thing in the film, up to that point, played it like Tina was the main character. This is vintage Wes Craven, who has done this a few times, never this shocking though. This scene is brilliant because it shows us the power Freddy possesses, the fact that's what he does in your nightmares, they can affect you in real life. And I think this is where this film gets a lot of its scares from, is the fact that in a classic thrash slasher, the killer is human. You can run away or at least defend yourself to some degree. In this film, sleep is something you have to do, you can't escape it. There's so much more tension when our characters are feeling tired, as we know it's only a matter of time until Freddy can strike. Also, the fact there is virtually nothing you can do to defend yourself in your nightmare. It's Freddy's world, you're just living in it. After Tina's death, we get Nancy Thompson, played by Langenkamp, who happens to be another of Freddy's targets. Heather Langenkamp is brilliant in this film. She portrays Nancy as a strong, courageous character, who's also got a bit of, wit a bit of wits about her. She is, in my opinion, the perfect character to go head-to-head -head with, with Freddy. Final girls up to this point have sort of been the final girl due to luck rather than skill. Nancy has to survive Freddy using the tools she possesses. Speaking of Freddy, there's a reason why Robert Englund is synonymous with Freddy Krueger. It's because he was made for the role. Freddy is different than the other slasher icons due to him being the most evil. Michael kills because that's just what he does. Jason kills anyone who comes into contact with Camp Crystal Lake. Freddy, after being burned down by the townspeople, comes back for revenge. The reason why Freddy is, in my opinion, much more even than the other two is because he really enjoys killing. He even goes as far as to toy with his victims before brutally slaughtering them. Obviously Freddy doesn't have the physical prowess of Michael and Jason. Freddy is intimidating due to the fact he can do whatever he wants in your nightmare and there's nothing you can do about it. In my opinion, this makes him much more intimidating than the other two. I also love Freddy's one-liners. They aren't so prevalent in this one, as this is more of a scary Freddy, but he still just cracks some from time to time. Because anything can happen in our characters' nightmares, the kills are absolute spectacles themselves. Glenn, played by Johnny Depp, his death springs to mind. It's absolutely gory, but you can't stop watching. It's an absolute brilliant death in which we see the brilliance of physical effects. I love the ending to this film. Nancy is no longer scared of Freddy. Freddy relies on this to be able to kill his victims. Freddy seems to be finally defeated after this brilliant chase sequence in which we see traps, nearly deaths, etc. When Freddy is finally defeated and everything seems fine and dandy, we get a final scene where all of our dead characters are in a car with Nancy as they go off to school. It's like nothing happened. 
The hood goes up on the convertible. Its colour's the same as Freddy's jumper. Freddy then grabs Nancy's mum and somehow pulls her through the tiny window in the family's door and we hear Freddy's iconic laugh. The film ends. Like I mentioned before, A Nightmare on Elm Street is what happens when you put your hand in your pocket and hire a world-class writer director in West Craven. This film has a unique premise that still looks and feels great even today and these are the reasons why it's on my list. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I remember, I think I watched when it first came out. Yeah. Um, was it? Because I know slashes. They they followed the same tropes, and then you got this fresh. Yeah, it's the fact that you can die in your sleep. Yeah, you know that that Freddy can actually enter your dreams or nightmares, and and that's you can you can be killed in your sleep. That was a completely new concept, I think, in slasher films, and again, an iconic character. Yeah, um, he's the films have been rebooted. And yep. also crossovers with like the yep. Jason versus Freddy versus Jason, and so yeah, he, he really is a, a cultural icon. Um, again, he's part of the big three, isn't yeah. he? With Michael and Jason, yeah, definitely. But yeah, no, it's it's this, especially this first yeah. film is absolute classic. And again, it's it's been often parodied in The Simpsons and other. Yeah, um, like I said, he, uh, Freddy, like many, like a few others, has has kind of outgrown the horizon as in. In just in general, like pop <coughs> culture, he's well known. Everyone yeah. knows Freddy Krueger, don't yeah. they? And it's obviously because of this film. So. Yeah, so good choice. Thank you. Right, okay. you're next. My next one is what most people considered the first of the yeah. uh, werewolf universal werewolf films, The Wolfman, uh, which was made in 1941. And the plot is Lawrence Talbot, played by Lon Chaney Jr., returns to his ancestral home from America. Um, to Lanwelly in Wales to bury his recently deceased brother and reconcile with his strange father, Sir John Talbot, played by Claude Rains. So that explains why he's got an American accent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whilst there, he, Larry falls in love with a local girl named Gwen Conliffe who runs an antique shop. As an excuse to talk to her, he purchases a walking stick decorated with a silver wolf's head, and Gwen tells him that he represents a werewolf, which she defines as a man who changes into a wolf at certain times of year. Various villagers recite a poem whenever the subject of werewolves come up. And the poem is, Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers at night may become a wolf when the wolf's bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Now that po poem is actually carried on and recited in some of the sequels as well. Yeah. So that's kind of a common theme. Later that night, Larry attempts to rescue Gwen's friend Jenny from what he believes to be a sudden wolf attack. He kills the beast with his new walking stick, but he's bitten on the chest in the process. A gypsy fortune teller named Maliva reveals to Larry that the animal which bit him was actually her son, Bella, played by Bella Lugosi, in the form of a wolf. She also reveals that Larry will transform into a wolf as well, since he who is bitten by a werewolf and lives will turn into one himself. From her, Larry learns that silver is the only thing that can kill a werewolf. So he actually beat it to death with the head of his silver right, yeah. um, cane. Mm. Just like Maleva one, Larry transforms into a werewolf on the following full moon and kills several villagers. He returns to normal the next morning, initially with no memory of his rampage, but the recollection of his crimes gradually returns to him, leaving him horrified and racked with guilt. The night of the next full moon, he begs his father to restrain him to prevent him from hurting anyone else. Nevertheless, he becomes a werewolf once again, breaks free of his restraints and attacks Gwen. Seeing that his son is doomed to become a werewolf and kill innocent people as long as he lives, Sir John reluctantly puts Larry out of his misery by bludgeoning him to death with his own silver-headed cane. 
The movie ends with Sir John and Gwen watching in horror as the dead werewolf transforms back into Larry's human corpse. Now, some, reading that, something I never, I never noticed in the in the original film, is that when Larry's attacked, he's attacked by a wolf, but he actually becomes a hominid wolfman, which is kind of odd. Yeah. Because uh. <laughs> Bella turns into a wolf, whereas Larry turns into the oh, half wolf, half no. human thing. How do they explain that? I don't know. It's just, it's just something I thought about. <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, casting the wolfman was problematic. Uh, Bella Lugosi campaigned hard for the title role and Universal originally planned for the project to be another Boris Karloff but eventually cast a guy called Dick Ferran and he was mainly known for B-movie westerns but was replaced just one week before filming began by Lon Chaney Jr. Lon Chaney Jr. was born Creighton Chaney and he was the son of the cinema giant Lon Chaney and he only began acting after his father's death who dissuaded him from a career in show business and he made his film debut in films in 1931 under his birth name. And he, he appeared a lot in B-movies, westerns, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, he changed his name in 1935 as he was struggling to make it as an actor. And he quoted, I'm most proud of the name Lon Chaney. I'm not proud of Lon Chaney Jr. because they had to starve me to, to make me take this name. Oh, wow. And he's probably most famously um, known for playing Lenny in the 1939 of Mice and Men. He made his debut for Loot Universal in Man Made Monster in 1941, a science fiction horror thriller originally written again with Boris Karloff in mind. Um, Chenny's first horror film, it was successful enough for them to offer him a long term contract. After a few supporting roles, he was offered the character that he's most closely associated with of the Wolfman, and he was to play Larry Tolbert, the Wolfman. Uh, four more times and he's the only actor to play four, all four of the main universal monsters so he played the Wolfman in 1941 he played Frankenstein's monster in the Ghost of Frankenstein in 1942 he played Caris the Mummy in the Mummy's Tomb in 1942 and he played Dracula in Son of Dracula in 1943 but like Lugosi found himself typecast as a horror yeah. actor he was a heavy drinker and smoker. He struggled with alcoholism and later on in life suffered from throat cancer and heart disease. Um, and I think he died of alcohol-related illnesses. So again, he had quite a quite a sad end to his yeah. life, really. Um, this film is the second Universal Pictures werewolf film preceded six years earlier by the less commercially successful Werewolf of London. The Wolfman makeup was again designed by Jack Pierce and it took six hours to apply, three hours to get off, and consisted primarily of a rubber nose and yak hair which was attached to Lon Chaney Jr.'s face, arm and legs with spirit gum. Many of the modern myths of werewolves originate from this film, such as a person becoming a werewolf through a bite, the only way to kill a wolf is with a silver bullet, and werewolves and their victims being marked with pentagrams. There was a 2010 remake starring Benicio del Toro and Anthony Hopkins, which wasn't great. I don't know if you've seen it. No, I, I, up until a couple of days ago, I yeah, didn't realise even. On, if you want to watch, it's on Amazon Prime now. <laughs> Is it good? No, it, <laughs> it, it, it kind of. I mean, it tries to follow the same storyline. Yeah. But just it, Hopkins just kind of like phoning his performance in really. <laughs> um, 2000. 14 Universal were looking to reboot the Wolfman as part of their Dark Universe, which was shelved obviously because of the mummy. Yeah. 
Apparently, in May 2020, it was announced that Ryan Gosling had been cast as a Wolfman in a standalone film. Is that still going on? As far as I know, it is. Yeah. Mm. So they were looking at um, is it Lee Wennell who did the the Invisible Man, uh, the new one. Yeah, Lee Wannell. Oh, Lee Wannell, yeah, Wannell, yeah. Yeah, they were looking at um, them um, directing it. Oh, wow. Because I think initially Gosling wanted to produce it as well and mm. direct it, and I think they he decided not to do that. So oh, I'll definitely watch that mm. if it's got Ryan Gosling in. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, yeah, but again, it's just an, another iconic, um, yeah. an iconic universal monster. And again, it, it sort of defined a lot of the, like I say, a lot of the, the law, the werewolf law that was going to be used in later that. films. I didn't realise that a lot of the law around werewolves and wolfmen were from that film. Yeah. Like the silver bullet yeah. thing, you know. Everyone knows about all, the, yeah. all that stuff, don't they? That wasn't mentioned in, like, the European folklore as well. It was That was sort of... Yeah, I, d- I didn't realise that film. I didn't realise that was that correct. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. And once again, another very iconic character as well. Yeah. Right. My next film is an absolute banger. It's Ghostbusters. <clears throat> like I said, I do... A couple of my films, they are horrors, but they also go into other genres yeah. as well. It's a 1984 comedy horror film written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, directed by Owen Reitman. It stars Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis himself, Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis. The plot. After the members of a team of scientists lose their cushy positions at a university in New York City, they decide to become Ghostbusters to wage a high-tech battle with the supernatural for money. They stumble upon a gateway to another dimension, a doorway that will release evil upon the sea. Ghostbusters must now Mm. save... (laughs) Zool. Moving on from that. (laughs) New York from complete destruction. Uh, Ghostbusters is a film in which it took me a long time to fully understand. There are multiple reasons for this that I'll get into. First off, the plot is really quite simple and easy to follow. For me personally, even as a little kid, I was able to take it in. What I found hard to understand was the comedy in this film. Now, nowhere am I implying this film isn't funny. It's an absolute classic. I think it was, I was just a bit too young for it. Now, did I find it funny back then? Yes, of course. There's plenty of visual comedy. Comedy that particularly resonates well with kids. But Ghostbusters isn't really known as a visual comedy. Ghostbusters is a smartly written, well thought out, mature comedy film in which the comedy comes from the writing. In my opinion, this type of comedy is so much funnier and more impactful. You know, there's been some thought and work put into it. Unfortunately for us, the smart writing provides the base of this film. I'm going to start with the intro. This intro is an instant classic and it certainly gets the ball rolling. Here we see our main characters in action. Raymond Stantz's team consists of Ray himself, Dr. Peter Venkman and Egan Spengler. is called in to deal with the ghost of a librarian, Eleanor Twitty, at the New York City Library. Here we see the personalities of our characters, and they are a diverse bunch to say the least. Peter Venkman, played by Murray, is the lazy ghostbuster. He doesn't really take his work seriously, he has a dry sense of humour and is the womanizer of the group, even going as far as to flirt with the clients, female of course. Ray Stance, played by Aykroyd, as the team's leader, is enthusiastic, dedicated and friendly. Ray is the heart of Ghostbusters and incredibly devoted to the company. He even goes as far as mortgaging his house to provide the startup capital. Egan Spengler, played by Ramis, is hard-working and constantly focused on the paranormal activity of New York. His life revolves around a scientific study, in general as well as on the ghosts. In his spare time, he collects spores, moulds and fungi. Basically what I'm trying to say is he is the nerd of the group. Like I said before, in these first couple of scenes, 
we can and are already shown these personality traps of our main characters. This is how well this film is written. The guys attempt to communicate with the ghost in which they hilariously shushed. Eventually they disturb the peace so much the entity lets out an almighty roar as a face changes into a horrible almost skeleton. The scene is one of the funniest in the whole film and it does the great thing of setting up the tone and what this film is going to entail all within the first 10 to 15 minutes. This is that smart, brilliant writing I was on about earlier. I also love the special effects in this film. Richard Edlund was certainly on great form as this film is almost synonymous with his visual effects. Just randomly, I love the character Slimer. His scene where he attacks Venkman is hilarious and he's almost the young son star of this film. We love him, don't we? Yeah. He's looking at me. But yeah, he, he was almost he's almost like the unofficial mascot yeah. to this film, wasn't he? Oh yeah, we do love him. In the animated series, he, he was the main character, wasn't he? Comes in to be part of the Ghostbusters, <laughs> doesn't he? I think something That's like sick, that. That's sick, that is. Yeah. But yeah, no, we do like slime in yeah. this house. <laughs> now I'm going to maybe step on some thin ice with what I'm going to do next. But I'm going to compare a single scene from this 1984 original and the 2016 reboot. The scenes I'm going to compare from both films are the scenes in which they introduce and explain the proton packs. The 2016 reboot has a scene in which the female version of Egon unnaturally explains what the proton pack is to the others out of the blue. We are then shown Melissa McCarthy try out the proton pack and in doing so it flings her into the air while she is suspended in the air for about a minute, a minute too long if you ask me, while the other characters are stood to the side of her doing nothing, just laughing. She is then slammed into the ground, she gets up like nothing happened and we transition to the next scene. I'll now explain the proton pack scene in the original and then I'll compare them afterwards. The guys get into the hotel elevator. Ray explains that he's a bit worried due to the fact they haven't done any real tests to make sure it's safe. Finkman sarcastically says, Why worry? Each of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on our back. Ray asks Egon to switch his pack on. As he does this, it starts making unusual noises. Unbeknown to Ray, Egon and Venkman are seen trying to get as far away as possible from the, fact, from the pack while also having concerned looks on their faces. Of course they can't go very far due to them being in an elevator. The elevator opens and we transition to the next scene. And now there's, there's a myriad of reasons why one is much better than the other and I don't think I have to explain which one. Uh, there are just some, these are just some of them. First off, the execution of particularly the dialogue in the 2016 reboot, female Egon explains the proton pack out of nowhere to the rest of the cast. It's almost like the writer thinks the audience is so dumb that we don't already know what it is. We're then treated to an absolute CGI clusterfuck in which Melissa McCarthy is thrown into the air. I mean, where's the comedy in that? It's literally something a four-year-old would laugh at. Haha, <laughs> look at the fat lady flying mummy. That's literally where the comedy is, isn't it? Well, it's, yeah, it's slapstick, isn't it? Yeah, than cheap stuff. Slapstick. Yeah. When Melissa <coughs> McCarthy is thrown to the ground, she gets up like nothing has happened and everyone goes their merry ways. Although this may seem small, in my eyes this is a huge problem of the reboot. And, it, and it ha particularly this happens a lot during, during this 2016 reboot. None of these scenes have purpose. As I was watching it, I was thinking, well the characters obviously don't care that the proton packs are dangerous, well then why should I? This then turns into the film doesn't have any purpose, why am I still watching it? For me personally, it's a lazy writing and unfortunately if the writing isn't good, the film isn't going to be good either. Now onto the 1984 scene. The guys have some very organic dialogue about the proton pack not being tested fully. Already this tells us a lot about the protein pack without giving us Shakespeare's works on it. Once the protein pack is turned on, we can see how the characters react, especially Egon and Venkman, which is also how anybody else would react. What I'm trying to say is it's very natural. 
The scene ends, but the guys are still very wary of the packs due to this scene. That purpose I was on about earlier, this is how to do it. And it makes mu and it makes later scenes so much more impactful, while also making us more focused on what's going on. We all know the original scene is a hundred times funnier. Oh, and one more thing, the reboot scene was like 10 minutes. The original got the same point across in maybe a minute, and they did it so much better. I know I keep on saying this, but this is what happens when you have a smartly written script. I also think the gatekeeper and keymaster almost subplot is great between Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis. The ending is brilliant and a great example of Ghostbusters being both a comedy and a horror. You have the iconic Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, a terrifying beast fit for a film like Ghostbusters. It's a great action-packed third act that will leave you satisfied and I think I'm right in saying that they actually took inspiration from Kong because they wanted a huge beast and Joe, it, where he's walking through the yeah. streets. But Well, it's reminiscent of Kong, isn't it? Yeah. But I don't, I don't know. Wouldn't surprise me, you know. Yeah. Uh, Ghostbusters also has a great theme by Ray Parker Jr. Absolutely iconic. Overall, Ghostbusters was a phenomenal when it first came out, and rightly so. Harbors its fun, its comedy through smart writing, which I think we both would agree is much funnier than cheap slapstick. The stars certainly aligned when it was made, and for the many reasons I brought to the light, that's why it's on my list. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, Ghostbusters is absolutely iconic. Like everyone knows the Ecto One, everyone knows the proton packs, the the logo, the mm. fire the fire station. Yeah, it's just an absolutely um, iconic I, film. I mean, <clears throat> I believe that originally was written with uh, John Belushi in mind was, yeah. to play the Bill Murray of Venkman. Um, obviously, Aykroyd and Belushi. Um, they, I think they planned several projects together. They were basically brothers, weren't yeah. they? Yeah. And uh, I think it originally their, their script was going to be so totally different to how it turned out. Um, and I believe, I think Bill Murray pretty much ad-libbed all his lines. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. They just let him, let him kind of do He's that. just a genius, yeah. isn't he? Comedy genius. And so when you, you combine great writing, great performances, you have a, a really good film. And, well, I mean, like I, say, I, I compared one scene, right? Because obviously they were... It was a scene where it featured an original and the reboot, but that shit writing is throughout the whole 2016 mm. reboot, and it's so. But it's almost like it tries too hard it to does, be yeah. funny, rather than be organically funny, like you say with the mm. with the the script. It tries to it falls back on the lazy um, slapstick stuff um, and relies too heavily on that kind of thing, rather than clever writing. I and think it's so much funnier, isn't it? And yeah. it's so much more impactful. And like I said, with the purpose thing, um, even like near the end of the movie, they're still wary of the proton yeah. packs, aren't they? Still mm -hmm. like scared of them. Obviously, don't cross the beams and yeah, stuff. Like, you told us never to cross the beams, right? <laughs> Got to cross the beams. <laughs> right, yeah. But yeah, yeah no, it's yeah. so. You know, and, and um, this thing, it knows when when to yeah. visualize because obviously you can see it on. Um, Egon and Venkman's face yeah. how uncomfortable they are yeah. where in the reboot they just don't give a shit yeah. really and I was like if they don't give a shit why should I give a shit so but unfortunately they they rushed out Ghostbusters 2 as a sequel yeah which didn't quite have the same impact no um, and it's really not a very good sequel to it I must admit I've only seen it a handful mm. of times so but yeah no the, well, the original is a classic I'm looking it? forward to Afterlife I am. when that comes out hopefully yeah hopefully that'll be when I mean, they got the Ecto-1 as yeah. the because um, I think you, 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 yeah. What's up? I think you have to, you have to pay some homage to the original. Yeah, of film, course. Um, in some way, 
I mean, a lot of a lot of times they try to have like the original actors come back and and cameos, which they do. They, I, think. I think they are in this, yeah. this new one. And um, I think I think actually, uh, is it Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd? I think they're actually part of the writing team or something. Yeah, possibly. Uh, I know how Ramis died, didn't he? Yeah. So. Or they're producing it or something. Yeah. So that must mean they they like because Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd hated the 2016. Yeah. That's why they weren't involved with it. So. They, they, <laughs> I think Bill Murray had a, had a cameo, yeah. but he said they hated it afterwards. So. I think we uh, we covered this in a, a previous we podcast. We did. So <laughs> really but yeah, Ghostbusters is a classic, especially the original one. Yeah. yeah. Right, on to your okay. next one. So this is my penultimate one, and this is The Thing from Another World, which is the 1951 um, horror science fiction film. Mm. So the plot is, in Anchorage, journalist Ned Scott looking for a story visits the Alaskan Air Command Officers Club where he meets Captain Pat Henry and his crew. General Fogarty orders Henry to fly to Polar Expedition 6 at the North Pole per a request from its lead scientist, Nobel Laureate Dr Arthur Carrington, as they have radioed that an unusual aircraft has crashed nearby, so Henry pilots a Douglas C-47 transport aircraft to the remote outpost. Several of the scientists fly with the airmen to the crash site, find a large object buried beneath the ice. As they spread out to determine its shape, they realise they are standing in the circle they have discovered a flying saucer. The team attempts to melt the ice covering the saucer with thermite, but a violent reaction with the craft's metal alloy completely destroys it. Their Geiger count, however, detects a frozen body buried nearby. It's excavated in a large block of ice and loaded aboard the transport. They fly out as an arctic storm closes in on the site. The ice block is accidentally thawed and the creature, still alive, escapes into the storm and is attacked by sled dogs. The airmen recover the creature's severed arm after the attack. The scientists examine the arm, concluding that the alien is an advanced form of plant life. Carrington is convinced of its superiority to humans and becomes intent on communicating with it. The airmen begin a search which leads to the outpost greenhouse where they discover a sled dog hidden away which has had all its blood drained, determining that the carnivorous plant creature feeds on blood. Carrington, obsessed with the alien, has taken seeds from the severed arm, using them to grow small alien plants by feeding them from the blood plasma supply at the base. Realising that the temperature is falling rapidly, the furnaces have stopped working, sabotaged by the alien, the remaining humans retreat to the station's generator room to keep warm and rig an electric trap for the creature. The creature walks into the trap and is electrocuted and reduced to a pile of ash. Scotty is finally able to file his story of a lifetime by radio to a room full of reporters in Anchorage. He ends his broadcast with a warning. Tell the world. Tell this to everybody. Wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the skies. So this is based on the 1938 novella Whose Goes There by John W. Campbell. This is a science fiction horror which features an alien rather than a traditional monster. This is post-Hiroshima, the atomic age, UFOs and spacecraft. It reflects America's feeling at the time, negative views towards scientists meddling in things they should leave alone. And the screenplay changes the fundamental nature of the alien. The film's thing is a humanoid life form whose cellular structure is closer to vegetation, although it must feed on blood to survive. The internal plant-like structure of the creature makes it impervious to bullets, but not to other destructive forces. Campbell's thing is a life form capable of assuming the physical and mental characteristics of any living thing it encounters. This characteristic was later realised in John Carpenter's adaptation of the novella, the 1982 version of The Thing. Originally it was intended to make the creature a shapeshifter, as in the novel, but the limited budget forced the filmmakers to drop the idea. 
Now, directors including Ridley Scott, John Frankenheimer, Tobe Hooper and obviously John Carpenter all cited the movie as a key influential film in their lives. Now, in the original Halloween 78 version, The Thing is actually one of the films that appears on the TV while uh, Laurie's babysitting. So that's how much John Carpenter obviously loved this film. Yeah, and that's how how I realised. He he fought for a long time to want... He wanted to make his own thing, didn't he? And obviously, um, you know, Ridley Scott, John Frankenheimer, it's that, it's that again, it's that isolated, isolated um, in this case, it's an Arctic scientific post. You've got this unstoppable sort of killing machine, um, so it's similar tropes. And the events in this film kind of precede what happens in John Carpenter's film, because obviously in that film, that starts with the Norwegians already have uncovered the spaceship, yeah. thawed the thing out, things destroyed their camp, and they're pursuing it into the Arctic. Well, like you said, um, yeah. um, the, the thing, John Carpenter's one, is kind of like middle ground, because they also made a... Well, in 20, 2011, they made a prequel to the thing, yeah. which was covered the... Um, and that showed the Norwegian side yeah, of it. Yeah, the Norwegian side of it, yeah. how you know they discover the spacecraft, destroy it, and then... Yeah, so it's kind of backwards and forwards, but yeah, this this film I love this film because it, it is. I, I'm gonna. <laughs> I, I tell you what, I'm gonna make it hard for you. Yeah. The original or the eighty two? Oh, it's got to be eighty two. Yeah. You know, because um, that's the one that's closely more more closely follows the book in well, terms yeah. of the the creature. But if they could have made this film with those effects, then maybe it would have been. Yeah, it's just, it's just different. Unfortunate that it was at the time and and, and had a big budget, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, but again, it's the fact that it's influenced Carpenter, it's influenced yeah. other directors. Um, it's that's its legacy, really. Right. Yeah. And maybe if it wasn't, obviously, if it wasn't for that, then we wouldn't have got John Carpenter's yeah, eighty-two. So definitely, very good choice indeed. Right, my next film is Evil Dead Two. It's a nineteen eighty-seven comedy horror movie written and directed by Sam Raimi. It stars Bruce Campbell and Denise Bixler. The plot: Ash Williams once again battles horrifying demons at a secluded cabin in the woods. After discovering an audio tape left by a college professor that contains voices reading from the Book of the Dead. I forgot, I forgot even what the Book of the Dead is called, but um, it's called like the uh, Nec- Necronomicon, that's yes, it. Yes, yeah. I, f- I pulled down though, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> Ash's girlfriend Linda becomes possessed by evil spirits that are awakened by the voices of the tape. Ash soon discovers there is no escape in the woods. A long and firm favourite of mine, Evil Dead 2 remains for me the pinnacle of the comedy horror hybrid genre packed with inventiveness wit and energy in every single frame of every single scene this is movie making par excellence the story begins by recapping the original movie reshot eliminating all characters aside from Ash and his girlfriend and then moves into even more thrilling territory as a new story unfolds full advantage is taken of of the increased budget so that we get better sets better costumes better makeup and most of all better special effects the latter really makes a difference on what is still a relatively low budget movie, packing in tons of weird and wonderful demons and monsters including plenty of imaginative stop motion effects which are worked well into the blend. 
If The Evil Dead was the film that first introduced the skills of director Sam Raimi and the star Bruce Campbell, then Evil Dead 2 is the film to show that the original 1982 hit wasn't just a one-off wonder, and that instead both star and director had staying power, which would outlive the series itself. Raimi does some fantastic things with cameras and builds on his efforts in the first film, sometimes paying homage to these original shots and often making the film in directions he was unable to explore the first time around, obviously due to budget. Fans may wish to note that the emphasis is on comedy over horror this time around and a perfect balance is struck between the two genres. Plenty of laugh out loud moments interspersed with genuine terror and creepiness makes for good times aplenty. This film belongs to the athletic Campbell as Ash, as he really carries it along on his shoulders alone. Almost half an hour of the movie consists of Bruce acting on his own, and when the other characters do eventually arrive, it is a testament to his acting skills that you wish that he'd actually instead been left on his own for the entire movie. The film was packed with action and incident and tons of imagination. One great, never before seen moment follows another, highlights including the chainsaw fight in the work shed, the hand possession, and the entire finale sequence which is simply blissful. The script is witty and concise about putting unnecessary dialogue into the mouths of the characters and things are rounded off by another fantastic Joe DeLuca score which really emphasises a number of key moments. The supporting cast is uniformly excellent with especially notable turns from Sarah Berry as the tough heroine, Danny Hicks as a truly loathsome slob, and an unrecognisable Ted Raimi buried inside a rubber suit as possessed hag Henrietta. Blood flows, limbs and heads are lopped off at, a reg at regular intervals, yet the film remains light-hearted and fun all through this thanks to the party atmosphere prevalent throughout. Truly a classic landmark piece of filmmaking, which sadly has not been bettered since. I think it's fair to say that there's no film quite like this to be seen anywhere else and it remains even now one of my all-time favourites that I can watch and enjoy over and over and over again. These are the reasons on my list. So yeah. yeah good and I was very close to doing The Evil Dead and I thought lost Evil Dead 2 just, you know, where it had the increased budget and whatnot, Sam Raimi was able to implement things maybe he wanted to do in the original he couldn't and yeah, it just, it takes it into another direction you know and it takes it into into it heightens it even more you know and, and i think a lot of people including myself agree well dead 2 is probably the better of the two but mm. yeah an absolute classic of, yeah of, definitely of the genre and yeah that's why it's on my list yeah, it's been a while so i'll have to watch it again because it's been a while since i've watched that yeah they're, br they're brilliant films even this brilliant trilogy even army of darkness <clears throat> and whatnot so yeah okay that brings us to my last film and probably my favorite universal monster mm. <clears throat> Creature from the Black Lagoon, 1954. So the plot is a geology expedition in the Amazon uncovers fossilised evidence, which is a skeletal hand with webbed fingers from the Devonian period that provides a direct link between land and sea animals. Expedition leader Dr. Carl Mayo offers his two assist orders his two assistants to stay in camp while he visits the Marine Biology Institute. Soon after, a piscine amphibious humanoid, try saying that three times, <laughs> a living member of the same species from which the fossil had originated becomes curious about the expedition's camp. When its sudden appearance frightens the assistants, they panic and attack, and in response, the enraged creature kills them both. Carl reunites with his friend and former student, Dr. David Reed, who works at an aquarium in California, but more recently he's been a guest at Carl's Institute in Brazil to study lungfish. David persuades his boss, a financially minded Dr. Mark Williams, to fund a return expedition to the Amazon to look for the remainder of the skeleton. The group goes aboard the tramp steamer Rita, captained by Krusty Lucas. 
The expedition consists of David, Carl, Mark, David's girlfriend and colleague Kay Lawrence and another scientist, Dr Edwin Thompson. When they arrive at the camp, they discover Carl's assistants have been killed while he was away. Lucas suggests he was likely done by a jaguar, but the others are unsure. A further excavation of the area while Carl found the fossil turns up nothing. Mark is ready to give up the search, but David suggests that perhaps thousands of years ago, the part of the embankment containing the rest of the skeleton fell into the water and was washed down river, broken up by the current. Carl says the tributary emptied into the lagoon. Lucas calls it the Black Lagoon, a paradise from which no one has ever returned. The scientists decide to risk it, unaware that the amphibious gill man that killed Carl's assistants has been watching them. Taking notice of the beautiful Kay, the creature follows the boat all the way down river to the Black Lagoon. The gill man kills several of Lucas's crew members, is captured, escapes and injures several more of the party. Following these incidents, David decides they should return to civilization, but Mark objects as he's obsessed with capturing or killing the creature. As the boat tries to leave, they find the gillman has blocked the lagoon's entrance with fallen logs. While the others attempt to remove the logs, Mark is mauled to death while trying to capture the creature single-handedly underwater. The gillman then abducts Kay and takes her to its cavern lair. David, Lucas and Carl chase after the creature, and Kay is ultimately rescued. The creature is riddled with bullets before retreating to the lagoon, where its body sinks into watery depths. <clears throat> so that kind of follows a common theme where... You've got a scientific expedition, um, a woman is along, she gets captured by the monster, taken off, they mm. rescue her. One of the scientists is obsessed with capturing the animal or, or communicating with the animal, liking the thing, and is ultimately killed by it. So that's that's kind of a, a common theme you yeah. find. Um, this was The Last of the Universal Monsters, although it's not considered part of the sort of big four, it still is listed as one of the universal monsters um i think in the night in the 90s a, um, a series of postage stamps were uh, released with i think it was dracula frankenstein the mummy um wolfman and the Gillman as well so mm. that's one of my favorites anyway um the sort of um, the background behind it was that producer William Allen was attending a 1941 dinner party during the film of Citizen Kane in which he played the reporter Thompson when Mexican cinematographer Gabriel Figuero told him about the myth of a race of half fish half human creatures in the Amazon River ten years later Allen wrote story notes titled The Sea Monster using Beauty and the Beast as an inspiration so that's a common theme like King Kong he's kind of Beauty and the Beast mm. as well in December 1952, Maurice Sim expanded this into a treatment which Harry Essex and Arthur Ross rewrote as the Black Lagoon. Following the success of the 3D film House of Wax in 1953, Jack Arnold was hired to direct the film in the same format. So, it was a 3D film originally. Um, it spawned two sequels, Revenge of the Creature in 1955. It's, I think it's where the creature's captured, brought back to a... Um, I think it's brought back to Florida somewhere and then it escapes and kills people and mm. gets back to the Black Lagoon um, and the creature walks among us which is 1956 and that was filmed in 2D and that marked Clint Eastwood's debut where he plays a lab techni technician I think he has like two lines in it <laughs> um, <clears throat> in podcast episode 11 failed films in development hell we discussed the attempted remakes of this film uh, by John Landis uh, he wanted to make it in 3D again but they didn't want it to clash with 
Jaws 3D, which came out at the same time. So that never happened. Then John Carpenter, he I think he got so far as having uh, mock-ups of the creature made, uh, but with the he went off to make uh, memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase, and because that film bombed, um, Universal decided not to go ahead with it. Ivan Reitman had a go. Um, Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro and Breck Eisner all wanted to remake this film. And the 2017 film The Shape of Water was partly inspired by Guillermo del Toro's childhood memories of this film. He wanted to see the Gilman and the film's co-star succeed in their romance. Mm. So yeah, the Gilman in um, <clears throat> Shape of Water is definitely uh, inspired by this film. Yeah, it looks as if I like him. And Steven Spielberg states he was influenced by this film and, and his opening shark attack in 1975's Jaws is clearly an homage because there's some of the underwater where Kay Adams is swimming and you see the underwater shots that's very similar to the opening scenes from Jaws so you can see that influence that he's mm. had on, on him mm. um, and like I keep saying I would have loved to have seen John Carpenter's version of this film yeah. I think it would have been uh, would have been great um, I've not heard of any plans of remaking it as part of the Dark Universe no. or, or rebooting it, but I'm sure that it probably will at some point. Um, but again, it's just an iconic monster. <clears throat> Although it didn't get an Abbott and Costello film, it did actually appear on Abbott and Costello's TV show called the Colgate Comedy Hour. Oh, yeah. It featured the Gilman, so it didn't escape from Abbott and Costello. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's my... That's my um, favourite mm. horror films. Like I said, another iconic character. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Right, my last is Misery. Misery is a 1990 horror thriller film written by William Goldman, directed by Rob Reiner. It's based on a Stephen King novel of the same name. It stars James Caan, Kathy Bates and Richard Farnsworth. The plot. After a serious car crash, novelist Paul Sheldon, played by Caan, is rescued by former nurse Annie Wilkes, played by Bates, who claims to be his biggest fan. Annie brings him to her remote cabin to recover, where her obsession takes a dark turn when she discovers Sheldon is killing off her favourite character from his novels. As Sheldon devises a plan for escape, Annie grows increasingly controlling, even violent, as she forces the author to shape his writing to suit her twisted fantasies. Misery is not just one of the more sublime examples of how to get a fulfilling adaptation out of a novel by Stephen King but also one of the prime examples of Rob Reiner's gifts as a director. He proves he had made Stand By Me an adaptation, adaptation of King's story, The Body, and his tele, uh, storytelling skills were at a level that he only so often matched up to, thanks in part to a better than average script from Ron, you know, from Goldman himself, which one could mark as his best King adaptation as well, by far. And I mean, when you've got a good script, it's, it's quite hard to screw up with yeah, the directing in it. Yeah. Reiner... Harnesses genuine suspense through little details, but at the same time also has a very macabre sense of humour about the proceedings. The material is like a crazy lifetime movie done by Alfred Hitchcock, with the source all, always very obviously and lovingly king. The premise is a batch of not quite coincidences, a writer of a pulp trash series called Misery drives from his main retreat with a new book and crashes his car in a blizzard. Pulled from a wreck by some mysterious person, it turns out to be what looks like a kind-hearted lady, Anne, who patches up his leg and keeps him in a comfy bed. But it doesn't last long as being simply kind-hearted very quickly she turns on a dime like a schizophrenic and she can't stand the ending of his new book. 
She makes him rewrite it after burning the old one, and it becomes a tale of two people who can't stand each other. Though Anne gets turned on in the greatest sadomasochistic scene, in the wretched hobbing scene, and who can't break away, one by some twisted dementia of God told me to, one by the fact that he's tied to the bed and, or his legs, ankles are shot to hell. Can the old sheriff solve the mystery in time? Beneath the heavy psychological implications laid out, sometimes at a wonderfully over-the-top pitch, other times more sinister, or even sad in a pathetic way, it's the acting that pulls it through. Bates is electrifying, as might be taken for granted for some, because he doesn't lose the truth of the character, like Jack Nicholson's portrayal in The Shining, in a way to compare. It's a part that the actor believes oneself in all the time, and so it goes wherever willing. Brave to be sure, but also a delicate tightrope to walk so as not to go too much into overkill. Uh, but let's not forget Can. It may be one of his very best performances, where a lot of time he has what I can only describe as what the fuck is going on like on his face, or subtle ones where he feeds the mindset of Annie as he plots any kind of escape or subterfuge, like with the smudge paper. If Bates is exceptional, so is he, and they have an equal partnership, in a sense, in keeping their scenes so well together. Plus, as mentioned, it ends up being hysterically funny, even in places unexpected. It doesn't go completely into cap either, try as it might to go into the realm of the ridiculous here, and there with some of the lines and such. It's the extreme nature of the story. Every little step that reveals coincidence and, ch and chance broken, or a little mistake taken, that alleviates some awkward tension. Few modern thrillers accomplish that, and even when it veers into becoming too much of a violent twist at the climax, it's still a hell of a lot of fun, and at times great cinema on the obsessive nature of creating, and how a whole other momentum takes place in control and absurd absurdism played straight. These are the many reasons why it's on my list. Um, Misery is one of those ones where you could say it's not an all-out horror movie, but I just think it's got so many scenes where you're just... You, you sit back in horror like the scene where Annie breaks his legs you know what I mean and it's brutal oh. isn't it or yeah. uh, with James Kern's character he fights back and he literally like bludgeons her to death yeah. and stuff yeah. you know well it's yeah it's it's that um, you know you he has a, a car crash he's rescued by this woman who I think initially is excited who he is yes because she he's, he writes her favourite books and then she gets to read a um, it's a draft isn't it of his yeah. latest book doesn't like the ending and so basically keeps him captive until he rewrites it so that's you know inflicting sort of hor horrific injuries on him Does, just to keep him there and any attempt to try to escape it results in more more injuries and, and pain and I, I love the tension because yeah. even uh, it may seem like a small thing but like when you can hear footsteps yeah. around the house and you don't know if she's uh, caught Paul doing something or what not kind of like you know what's going to happen but it's still horrific when he yeah. does yeah. you can't avoid it at yeah. any cost yeah. it's, a, it's a really good yeah. movie it's a really good adaptation of a Stephen King yeah a book as well I think one of the one of the best I think definitely it comes under the horror yeah. category. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Because if you think about it, you would not want to be in that situation no, at all. It was horrifying not. to be in that situation. So, yeah. yeah. Good choice. Well, that completes our horror special. Thank mm. you for staying with us. 
I apologise that we we both got bits of uh, cough, uh, cold, so yeah, we struggled a little bit through this uh, this episode, but we thought we we better do one, else, one. else we'd never never get one out. And plus, um, yeah, it's Halloween. It's yeah, Halloween, Halloween it? special. Um, next week we're planning on uh, it's the greatest movie intros, intros, yeah, int- intro scenes. Um, that's going to be a normal length podcast, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but all that's left is to say thank you for joining us, uh, and um, have a happy Halloween. <laughs> and hopefully we'll see you next week. Yeah. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye.